This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 208. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Alon Ramayasha. And today we have a special episode for you. First, we're going to have a little bit of a news check-in going over a bunch of lists, polls, some updates on what is available on manga apps, and then a couple of big industry pieces before heading into a revisit of our discussions over the years of My Brother's Husband by Gengoro Tagame. We will be revisiting and providing for you in this episode both of our discussions of the series. First, our discussion of the first volume when it came out five years ago, back in 2017. Ugh. And our follow-up discussion that we originally released as a Patreon exclusive in 2020, now being released in our public feed for the very first time. And we're going to be giving you a refresher on our thoughts on my brother's husband because I've covered our colors, his newest old ages mainstream work. And that episode is going to come out the following week. And we had a very special guest on that episode, translator Anishi, who you may remember I interviewed back two years ago as well. So we wanted to give you guys a refresher on our thoughts on the guy's work before you listen to our discussion of his newest one. And safe to say, we love both of them. So... You know, if you haven't, for some reason, checked out that discussion and checked out the series, most importantly, definitely give this a listen and go out and seek it out and then seek out our colors before you listen to our episode on it next week. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like Lum said, I figured it would be the best thing not just to like, you know, upload our our old uh, Patreon episode on it that we uploaded back in 2020, but I also thought it would be worth kind of uploading as well our original discussion of Volume 1, again, all the way back in 2017 when that first came out, uh, back from episode 35 of the podcast. Um, I figured we, we've gotten a lot of new listeners since then, and I don't know how many go back and listen to our backlog. So, hey, I thought it'd be worth including because there's also a lot of stuff in that discussion that I don't think was actually brought up during our Patreon discussion. So there's, there's a lot of stuff in between both of those discussions that I personally thought was worth adding into this episode. So it's going to be a real, like, kind of time capsule of, of our thoughts over the years of My Brother's Husband. And so I think both discussions are good enough to include in one episode. Also, they're both pretty short enough. So uh, I I think it'll make for a nice, interesting, like, hodgepodge Frankenstein of an episode of our thoughts on the series over the years. Yeah, it's a compilation episode. And definitely, if you haven't listened to that original discussion, it was... I think regard as one of our better discussions, at least in terms of uh, popularity metrics, it's, you know, the upload of it on our YouTube channel is still like the third most viewed of our podcast episodes on our YouTube channel with uh, 8.6 thousand views. Now, a far cry from our first place of the Pokemon Adventures podcast at 41 thousand views and counting, but still like among our most popular discussions back then and still even now. Oh, yeah. I mean, that episode overall, we were kind of talking off mic, I would say is like one of our better early episodes, kind of right before we like fully figured out our format for the show and like how we wanted to go about it. And yeah, I mean, I didn't listen to the whole episode, but just kind of like skimming through it, you know, pulling the excerpt of our My Brother's Husband Volume 1 discussion out of that episode and putting it into this one. I totally forgot that that was the same episode where, Lum, you had your infamous cross-account rant. (laughs) Yeah, another kind of defining uh, memorable moment of the show for us and the listeners, for sure. (laughs) Oh, I, you know, I haven't listened to that bit in like a while, so I I forgot like how heated you got about that. I I Mm -hmm. think, I think... 
I think our cross account review is up on the YouTube as well, right? Yeah, the cross account review is up there as well. Also, got a fair amount of views, not among like our top most, but definitely among, you know, one of our most watched. I mean, look, I'm usually the kind of person who'd be like, hey, you don't have to listen to our early episodes of the podcast. They're not really as good as what we're putting out now. Um, But, you know, that's one of the few episodes I will actively suggest you go back and listen to. Again, it's one of our better early ones. And if you just want to listen to our cross-account review back when, you know, that was a jump start, we'll leave a link in the show notes for the video on the YouTube if people want to see it. I I genuinely think it's, like, probably one of my favorite discussions. And, you know, honestly, at some point, I think we should do, like, a full episode on it. I think that would be really interesting, actually. (laughs) Sure, it'll be worth uh, revisiting, giving a full evaluation whether the uh, bile I drew at it was truly warranted. You know, (laughs) Wensleydale made a great video on it, and it seems like ultimately it just became kind of a mediocre uh, romance thing. But, you know, it's it's worth seeing whether, like, it really can sustain the level of, like, uh, (laughs) antagonism that I had towards it in the first couple chapters yeah we, we have to go and revisit our old nemesis eventually i think mm-hmm. um but yeah i really can't wait for you guys to listen to all of our thoughts on my brother's husband and you know before that like lum said we really should get into at least some news and i think we're going to start off with some list news and we are going to start off with the new york times graphic books and manga list for june 2022 and uh A lot of manga on this list, I counted this up ahead of time, 9 out of the 15 spots on this list are taken up by manga, which I think is pretty impressive for this list. And so, yeah, we're just going to go bottom to top. At number 15, we have Spy Family Volume 4. And then next up, we have Jujutsu Kaisen Volume 0, ranking at number 12, with Spy Family Volume 3, ranking at number 10. Wotakoi, Love is Hard for Otaku, Volume 6, ranking at number 9. Spy Family Volume 2, ranking at number 8. Uh, Demon Slayer, Kibetsu no Yaiba, Volume 1, ranking at number 5. Jujutsu Kaisen, Volume 16, ranking at number 4. Spy Family, Volume 1, ranking at number 3. And last but not least, Chainsaw Man, Volume 11, ranking at number 2. So Spy Family obviously has the most volumes in this list, along with Jujutsu Kaisen. And uh, yeah, again, a pretty good showing for manga on the New York Times list in particular. Yeah, manga comprises three-fifths of the list. Which is pretty impressive. Before, when we were first recovering these new bestseller lists, you know, manga volumes would only be like one or two spots. Now it's taking up the majority again. So we're seeing, you know, the boom continue to boom. And I appreciate that in not just do we see, you know, the usual Shonen Jump hits here, but we see Wojako ranking very highly with its final volume. And I just like seeing, yeah, a Jose series, you know, being that successful competitively among like, you know, these big jump titans and stuff like that. And I'm very glad to see that. Yeah, I think this is Wotakoi's first time on this list in particular. Yeah, it may very well be. Which, you know, sometimes I forget, like, just how well Wotakoi does whenever a new volume comes out. Like, uh, people really love that series. Yeah, and especially that final volume, they went out with all the stats with, like, cover exclusives at various retail outlets. So I'm sure that incentivized a lot of people to go out to stores to purchase it, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I think we can just move on to the book scan list for June 2022. And yes, uh, we're going to just start at the top right here uh, with Chainsaw Man Volume 11 at number one, along with Volume 10, ranking at number 14. And uh, I guess 
I, I was going to say, yeah, the final volume of Chainsaw Man, but with the way part two's going, I wonder if we're just going to get a Chainsaw Man volume 12. I wonder if that's just going to continue. I think that is what is going to happen because the series has not like rebranded itself as Chainsaw Man part two and continued as if it was a separate series. It restarted where the chapter left off at. So I would have just imagined, yeah, it'll just be compiled into a volume 12 and go forward from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was I was seeing I don't remember if we brought it up or if I like seen talk of this somewhere. But I remember, you know, hearing like people talk about like a possible like, oh, what if they did like a full Chainsaw Man like box set? Well, now I'm not sure if they can. Well, I guess they could do that for like, I mean, they can do a part one box set. Yeah, I guess I guess they could do that. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's the way they'll do it. Yeah, that, that didn't occur to me. But yeah, no, again, I was going to call it the last volume of Chainsaw Man, but that's not really the case anymore. It's the last volume of part one, though, still. Chainsaw Man, I think, would have done better on this list if it not for the next series we're going to have to talk about with Spy Family. Um, Spy Family literally has all seven of its volumes on this list, just to get it out there. With Volume 1 ranking at number 2 on the list, Volume 2 ranking at number 6, Volume 3 ranking at number 8, Volume 4 at number 9, Volume 7 at number 10, Volume 6 at number 11, and Volume 5 at 17. So literally every single volume that's out right now is on this list, which I think that's that's not surprising, but it's still pretty amazing. Indeed. I mean, it just goes to show the explosive popularity Spy Family has received in the aftermath of its anime. So we'll probably see that continue to be sustained as, you know, the second half of it is going to come later this fall. And yeah, I mean, Spy Family is just really sweeping these charts. It takes up a third of this list and we'll see how much more of it it will continue as more volumes come out whether all of its volumes will continue to take up spots on the list for sure the series with the second most exposure on this list is jujitsu kaisen uh with volume 16 uh ranking at number three i believe that's the newest volume to come out Mm -hmm. at this point and then we have volume zero ranking at number seven with volume one ranking at number 13 and volume two ranking at number 20 so jujitsu kaisen not as many volumes on the list of spy family but still a pretty good showing yeah, I mean, still four spots out of 20, nothing to sneeze at, and Jujutsu Kaisen, of course, still sustaining a lot of popularity, just off how enthused so many people are on the series. You know, there's not a ongoing, like, anime project on right now. I mean, we're still in the afterglow of the Zero movie, but still, you know, a lot of people still really hyped about JJK and collecting those volumes, especially as uh, they're nearing the end of the Shibuya incident dark in the volume releases here Mm, okay i am wondering i mean i'm I'm sure it will but i am wondering uh how much longer the momentum for chujutsu kaisen on this list will keep up until that next season comes out because i don't think that's coming out till next year so yeah i think that it'll sustain but We'll see. I mean, there could always be like a new hot thing come in that takes space away, much as how JJK and Spy Family and, and the likes of them have kind of over time taken spots away from, say, MHA and Demon Slayer now. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. It comes in waves of popularity, some of these series, depending on like what's hot the most hot at the moment i'm sure when the chainsaw man anime finally premieres hopefully this year i'm sure we'll see the same thing with chainsaw man where it's like if not most of its volumes then maybe even all of its volumes might be on the list you never know yeah over half the list will be just chainsaw man (laughs) (laughs) oh boy uh next up is demon slayer volume one ranking at number four with volume two ranking at number 16 so 
just two volumes of Demon Slayer, but still pretty reliable bestsellers. Mm-hmm. And then we were talking about it earlier, Wotakoi Volume 6 at number 5 on the list. I want to say this is the highest I remember Wotakoi being on this list. Uh, it may be the highest we've seen it. Yeah. For sure. I feel like usually when we see Wotakoi on this list, it's usually near, like, the bottom 10. Though I, I could be wrong. Yeah, I... We'll have to check, but I wouldn't be surprised. And again, I do think there was a lot of enthusiasm in particular to go out and purchase this final volume because of all the, the cover exclusive incentives and just because like, it's the end of like such a popular series. And again, it's just really nice to see like Bodokoi stands out uh, in a collection of titles that is mostly shonen as like a really successful Jose manga hit that sells like as competitively with them. So I really, very much appreciate to see and hope to see more titles like it carve out space against these shonen stuff in the future on this list as well. For sure. Uh, next up is another very reliable best-selling volume one uh, from Yen Press with Toilet Bound Hanako-kun volume one, ranking at number 12. And uh, yeah, glad to see uh, at least one Yen Press title do pretty well. Yeah, Hanako-kun again has just become Yen's big hit big bestseller right now. The thing that is competitive with all the Shonen Jump stuff, which is really nice to see. And because the series is so good. And yeah, I'm just glad that it's continuing its uh, momentum here. And I will be very disappointed if the sustained sales in the North American market and overseas, of course, in Japan itself, you know, if that doesn't inspire season two of the anime. But regardless, I'm just glad to see the manga do so well. For sure. Uh, next up, we have Death Note Short Stories, ranking at number 15 on the list. Death Note, everybody still loves Death Note. The sky is blue. Water is wet. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> an evergreen title. We see Volume 1 of the Omnibus Edition pop in every now and again, so it's no surprise that a new volume of Death Note would also do well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, next up is, is a new title on the list. I don't think we've seen this on the list before, but we have Deadpool Samurai Volume 2, ranking at number 18. Deadpool Samurai being a Deadpool manga that ran on Shonen Jump Plus and eventually got picked up over here for an English release. And yeah, it's interesting that Volume 2 is on the list because I don't think Volume 1 has been on the list at all. No, it must have just been a really competitive time when Volume 1 came out and not a lot of people picked it up compared to other stuff, but probably. Hey, I mean, nice to see that it is uh, selling pretty well. You know, obviously, it's a Deadpool title, so it has that advantage. But yeah, Deadpool manga doing really well. That's good to see, you know, from everything I see of it. It's like it's such a fun series. So yeah, nice to see that it's uh, having some success here. I haven't read Deadpool Samurai yet, although I, I really want to at some point. Um, a part of me was thinking like, I wonder if this is the volume with some of the like, MHA stuff in here, because I'm pretty sure All Might, or at least uh, All Might, quote unquote, appears in a Deadpool Samurai from what I've seen. Yeah, he makes a he makes a cameo. You know, that's <laughs> uh, very irreverent towards Shonen Jump stuff, uh, but also very reverent, I guess, in that way, where he, he's a Deadpool's a big <laughs> MHA and All Might fanboy. So. <laughs> I love that. Um, speaking of MHA, uh, we have. Uh, again, another reliable Volume 1 bestseller, My Hero Academia, Volume 1 at number 19 on the list. And uh, it still kind of shocks me just like, and again, it's because like other titles are doing that much better. But again, I've said it before, but gone are the days where My Hero Academia just takes over half the list. <laughs> it's just it's just so interesting to see. But again, Volume 1 at the very least still always does really well. It's it's kind of the equivalent of when we, when we see like Attack on Titan on these lists uh, most of the time, you know. For sure. 
Um, and yeah, that's about it for that list. Um, again, I mean, I don't know if we have much else to say again, other than Spy Family is dominating. And I'm looking forward to seeing like how much longer that lasts over the next year, or at least for the rest of this year. I think that's the key takeaway. Spy-Fi is the big it series right now. It's having its moment. Otherwise, it's kind of the usual suspects with some nice surprises in Wojakoi and Deadpool Samurai. For sure. Uh, but we're not done with uh, ICV2 just yet because we have to talk about the top manga franchises for spring 2022. And... uh I can just go from, again, bottom to top here. Um, once again, uh, Spy Family ranking at number 10 on the list overall. And I would not be surprised if the next time we get this list, it'll be higher on the list. Yeah, neither would I. I expect it to be much higher when we check in on the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up at number nine, we have Toilet Bound Hanakakun again from Yen Press. And uh, I'd say that spot for it makes sense. Like, we don't see nearly as many volumes of Hanakakun on the list as, like, again, Spy Family or any of the big, like, Viz Shonen Jump hits, but it's still always reliably on the list in some form. Yeah, it's right behind them. You know, Yen's only. I mean, this is such a Viz dominated list with one title from Yen, Kadansha, and Darkris. But yeah, this is, again, Yen's big hit right now, and it's selling just because behind the big shonen jump stuff right now so that makes sense where it is again speaking of shonen jump uh, we have one piece ranking at number eight one piece you know i think that makes sense one piece is also another very reliable seller at this point Mm -hmm. even though again another title we don't see nearly as many volumes on the list at one time but again still very reliable right i mean but how many volumes it has it must be like a steady seller at a certain level of quantity so even though a new volume may only intermittently appear on the book scan monthly list i'm sure it's still they still sell quite a high quantity and then when you have all that all the volumes and how much they sell culminated together yeah it makes sense one pizza spot on this list that it is like one of the big selling franchises consistently Mm-hmm. Speaking of quantity, we have overall Jinji Ito Horror ranking at number seven. Not surprised that this is on the list at all. Yeah, no, Jinji Ito consistently a very popular name. All his titles very anticipated. So, and Viz has been releasing like multiple years for a while. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like he's, in terms of like names of authors, he's like kind of the most respected beloved in the wider comic space for mangaka so yeah he he has a lot of mainstream attention and a lot of people itching to buy his books whenever they come out i would be very interested to see what kind of boom we'll see for jinji ito on these lists once that new netflix anime comes out yeah i hopefully it is good because the last (laughs) one just did not do it for a lot of people so yeah that's what i hear we'll see uh, next up, at number five on the list, we have Jujutsu Kaisen, which, again, I think the placement makes sense. Like, it does good, but I don't think it does as w- nearly as well as, like, some of the other ones uh, that precede it, obviously. Uh, including Attack on Titan at number four, uh, which, again, another volume one that's pretty reliably selling all the time, along with the rest of the series. Uh, at number three, we have Chainsaw Man, which, again, I would not be surprised if the next time we see this list, it'll probably be number one. I, c- I could see it happen. Number two, I shouldn't say I'm shocked it's this high because I actually thought it would be a little lower, but we have Berserk at number two, which, you know, I mean, Berserk is still a pretty, again, it's a bestseller. I guess I just wasn't expecting it to sell more than stuff like Chainsaw Man and uh, Jujutsu Kaisen, like the show to jump stuff. I think because we see like so many volumes of it at one time on the list, my mind just thinks like, oh, this is clearly doing better than Berserk, which obviously is not the case. Yeah. 
I think it's another matter of like, in terms of like quantity, like maybe a new volume of the omnibus releases of Berserk don't sell as much as titles that appear in the top 20, but the entire backlog of Berserk probably is selling a high volume that ultimately when you bring it all together accounts for Berserk selling this much. And also it might be the price point of the Berserk volumes in terms of like how financially successful it is because those books are, you know, fairly pricey. So like $30 to $40 or something. Yeah, like $40. So that even though they may not move as many units, perhaps as, you know, some of these other titles in terms of like revenue, uh, they, you know, get a lot of return. So I think that accounts for that. And yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then at number one, we have Demon Slayer, which, you know, considering it's also number one in other countries as well, like Japan, uh, I'm not I'm not that surprised. Demon Slayer is constantly doing well. Not not much else to add there. D- Demon Slayer has been number one uh, for a while. So but uh, I think this overall list makes sense to me. There's nothing here that's like totally surprising, I guess. Yeah, there, there really aren't a ton of surprises. It is all just kind of the biggest shonen stuff that is out right now. And then Berserk, of course, is singing, but it's like still in the same kind of spirit. It's still like an action like title. People are interested in, yeah. Uh, you know, Genji Hito's horror manga stands out in regards to that, but also because of how like embraced he is by the mainstream uh, and like general comic circles. It also makes sense that, you know, he continues to do well. So, yeah, I think, again, these are a lot of usual suspect titles you'd expect would be, you know, among the most popular and highest selling for the moment. And it's just going to be interesting to see how these rankings may shift uh as we go into the fall some series may rise some may drop and if anything new uh jumps into this as well i mean like i said once again spy family and chainsaw man will definitely be higher on this list i think the next time we talk yeah um but i think that about does it for list it kind of we have to get to some poll news that uh, we've been putting off for a while yeah we had a lot of character popularity polls and stuff that have been coming out over the past few months that we've cut for time so we want to take some time to go over them and we'll start off with a Shonen Sunday actually related popularity poll, Ooh. a popularity poll for Detective Conan ranking uh, the favorite female characters in the series. And a lot of them, and even I blank on some of the names of the ones lower on the list. <sighs> yep. But just to go over kind of the top spots here, uh, I'll count out from uh, 10 to 1. You know, go over the top, then we can 10 talk about some of the people who didn't make the cut there. But yeah, starting off uh, at number 10, we have Mary Sarah, which, you know, I really like her character. She's very interesting. So it makes sense. And then we have Rena, And so, yeah, she is at number 9. You know, hasn't been in the story for a long time. But, you know, I'm glad to see she's still pretty well-remembered and popular. Maybe, hopefully, she can uh, return to the story at some point. Then we have Junichi's mom. She's a number eight. She costs into the story time and time again. So that's always nice to see. Nice to see Yukiko come back every now and again. Uh, so then we have Kazuha. And yeah, you know, consistently in the story. Six, Sarah, one of my favorite characters. Five is uh, Azaza, the, you know, waitress at the cafe that Amuro works at, which I feel like her popularity is kind of in the afterglow (laughs) proximity to Amuro. (laughs) 
<laughs> which is why she's in the top five. It's the Amaro effect. You know, a, a nice enough character. I don't know if I would say I like her more than uh, anyone in the bottom half of this top 10 here. But, you know, especially, you know, I don't know if I'd have her in here compared to characters who did not make the top 10. But especially a certain character who just missed it. But we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, at number four is Remote, probably my favorite member of the Black organization and uh, consistently an interesting character and presence. The number three, we're covering the top three here, and they all have, like, their little crowns, like, on this, uh, chart that, like, listed how everyone ranked. And uh, we got Sato. Always love the police love story episodes and storylines and stuff. I would have been upset if she wasn't top three, honestly. I love her so much. <laughs> yeah. And then the top two are to be expected. And number two is Ron. And then a number one is, of course, my favorite Conan character and clearly so many others, Hybra. So, yeah. I think that this top ten makes sense in terms of, like... The most popular characters, except that, you know, I am very sad that Sarah just just missed a cut at number 11. Uh, so that is a shame because she is like easily among my favorite Conan characters. So very disappointed in that. I don't know how many other characters we want to highlight, but I do just want to say I'm fine with Sonoko being in like the top 15. I think anything less than that, I would have been a little sad because, you know, I, I have a soft spot for her. I think she's fun. Yeah, Sonoko is always a lot of fun. I always love her storylines. Especially, like, when she gets a chance to, like, play dead or Cohen knocks her out and, like, impersonates her to play dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think she's a fun presence. Mm -hmm. I also think Ari deserves to be a little higher. I mean, I'm glad she's in the top 20, but I, 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 I kind of think she deserves to be in top 10. Yeah, she's a cool character, so. Because, uh, honestly, I think, I think her, Sonoko, and Sato are probably, like, my favorite female characters, if I had to say. I mean, I, I like Haibara and um, and Ron as well, but I think those three are, like, are like the characters I, I like I like seeing the most, personally. Yeah, I can understand that for sure. I mean, they're great characters. And, uh, yeah, like, all the characters that I see here are characters that, yeah, it makes sense that they're popular. You know, it's not, like, too many surprises or too many people I, like, I don't, like, recognize who they are. I guess some people, like, when we're getting, like, to bottom of the top 30 and then the early part of the top 35, there are, like, some faces that are, like, I don't quite remember these characters. <laughs> but overall, like, I can say, oh, yeah, I can place a name to these or remember who they were. Uh, I'm a little surprised that, like, Sonoko's sister <laughs> makes the top word here because she only appeared, like, twice in the series. <laughs> but... <laughs> She comes in at, like, uh, number 38, so people remember her. Um, but yeah, overall, I mean, again, I myself especially, who um, I'm not as caught up to Conan as uh, everyone else I know, um, I think I recognized, make, like, a total of maybe, like, 10 or 11 characters out, out of this poll. Wow. Yeah, I'm I'm very, very behind, and... Yeah, I should fix that at some point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even in this, like, top 10, you have, like, characters who don't appear for, like, 70 volumes in, in Sarah and Mary, so it's like, yeah, you know. Conan is a, a series that's constantly going and constantly new characters coming. Like, Aoyama has drawn, like, thousands of characters <laughs> at this point, so, you know, to, to make this list, you really got to be the top, the most memorable. Um, but I guess, should we just move on to the next poll? Yeah, I thought it was nice to share a Sunday-related poll before going into a couple jump-related ones. For sure, yeah. And we had Mashal's first character popularity poll recently. As it's entering its final arc, Mashal got a chance to get its uh, first character popularity poll. It's pretty cool. 
So yeah, going from bottom up here from the top 10 or yeah, we can go from top 10 up though. I'm going to have to try and remember who the exact names of some of these guys are. But at number 10, we have like Order Mattel, the <laughs> very explicit Harry Potter uh, looking guy. who's <laughs> like the leader of like the divine visionaries and stuff like that he's kind of like if harry potter were more like draco malfoy yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so he comes in at number 10 and num- with 1400 votes about at number nine we have lennon with uh 1800 votes uh you know i'm glad to see people like her but she also hasn't really done much in the story though when it gets in the latest chapter and ended her maybe about to get to do something so uh we'll, we'll see we'll see uh at number eight was carpaccio luo yang and he was a guy who is a part of orca dorm and yeah he fought oh yeah he was the guy who like kind of fought and bullied finn for a bit and then mash came in and then like kind of beat him <laughs> up and there was that that was a good moment like you know for finn there was like he was like hanging on and then mash was coming in to kind of like you know avenge his friend because he cared about him and stuff like that so i like i like that i brought this fight up in my in our last best of manga episode i remember really liking that fight yeah it's a character who i don't think has shown back up since that fight so i i get trouble remembering him yeah but yeah that's I, fair now that i look up that moment again i'm like oh yeah no i i remember i remember this mm-hmm. at number seven was abyss eraser who was <laughs> definitely <laughs> he was definitely one of the best names <laughs> in the series and yeah like i liked his fight with match and his role in the story when he came back uh with abel i feel like he didn't get to do that much uh, in that big, like, competition with that other school or that fight with that other school. But, uh, you know, I like the character and his relationship to Abel and that and his introduction story arc. And so, yeah, I mean, I would say that he was a very memorable character. Makes sense. Uh, he comes in with 3,000 votes here at number seven. At number six, we have Finn at 3,500 votes. That makes sense. Uh, you know, Finn is like kind of the Usopp of the series. He's very cowardly, but he has these like moments where he's like really, you know, inspired to fight for his friends and you can root behind him, especially in recent chapters. He's had a great moment. So glad to see that. At number five is his brother Rain, who, you know, had a lot of cool moments like early on in the series. I feel like that's kind of dropped off a bit, but, you know, now he and Finn are going to get into a big fight together uh, against someone. So, you know, we'll have some cool moments of the brothers working together there. At uh, number four is Dot, comes in with 5.1 thousand votes. And yeah, Dot is a consistently fun character, gets some good character moments. I feel like he, I mean, the Mash's core group of friends are definitely, you know, Dot. Lance and Finn and you know I think that between them like Dot and Lance are the guys who like get the most like attention in terms of like development and focus and like fights and stuff and we're definitely going to be seeing that more I think in the upcoming battles that have just been teased than the latest films of the story so yeah he's a character who took a little bit to warm up to based on his introduction yeah <laughs> where he was like Screaming about how Mash wasn't fair and like was kind of being a little insulty, but yeah. you know, he turned out to be a character with a higher goal. Yeah, he got better. Number three is Lance, another character who has one problematic sign and like maybe he's too obsessed with his sister, but otherwise has generally been kind of a very cool and compelling character. 
every shonen series has to have one of those now, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Comes in with 6.8 thousand votes for number three. At number two, we got Caldo. He got 7.8 votes, close to 7.9. This guy, you know, is one of those guys that I remember being around. He's a very, like, you know, Gin, Ichimaru, Weasley kind of face and a kind of observational attitude to him. But I feel like compared to other divine visionary characters, like he has kind of lost some of that impression because he doesn't stand out as much anymore. But maybe that's just he hasn't had like a big moment. You know, for me, like, in terms of those Divine Visioning characters, like, the big character that I'm, like, into right now is Rio Grants, and he comes in in, like, just number 16 here. So if they were to do a second one, hopefully that character jumps back up. But regardless, uh, at number one, you know, clear away the most popular character with 11.5 thousand votes to Caldo's 7.8 is MASH, of course. And, you know, sometimes it's not always a given that the main character will be the most popular character in the series. But I think that MASH really works because of MASH and his deadpan, unplussed attitude towards the magical situations, uh, the magical world he's in. And his very direct attitude of like, oh, she's going to punch through these things, uh, you know, and very, very unplussed and chill so i I really appreciate his character he's one of the most fun protagonists i think in a jump manga because of that attitude and how he reacts to world around him so yeah very well deserved number one spot there yeah yeah for sure um i really like that um if i'm looking at this poll right uh some of mash's like muscles got some places on this list (laughs) Yeah, his muscles did rank on those because he named them. He personifies them. So Mash's bicep comes in at number 18 here. (laughs) His pectoral came in at number 20. His tricep came in at number 26. His just muscle, his regular muscle just came in at number 32. Uh, another muscle came in at number 35. So, you know, a lot of votes for Matches Muscles. Also the stars of, of the manga for sure here. <laughs> that is pretty good. Um, as well as a little good luck cream puff charm from earlier on in the series came in at number 25. Indeed. Yeah. Nice cream puffs. Another fun motif symbol in the series. It also looks like uh, Hajime Komoto himself got number 39 yeah that's pretty fun which is nice to see yeah so again like i think a lot of these make sense some of these characters haven't just been that prominent recently so i kind of forgot about them (laughs) in comparison to characters who have at least made more of an impression if they haven't been around more like margaret and apple they came in 12 and 13 here cell wars at number 15 rio grands as i mentioned before is like a character who's really been standing out a lot recently he comes up at number 16 so, yeah, like, uh, there are a lot of interesting placements here that, uh, some surprise. I mean, I wasn't expecting, like, Caldo to be that high in particular, because, and I just, I don't remember him doing much recently. But, you know, interesting design or kind of personality definitely is appealing enough for a lot of people. So, for sure. Yeah, I'd be interesting to see. I don't know if we're actually get, ever get a second character popularity poll because the series is close to ending. But, you know, it's, it's interesting to compare, of course, to how the U. US popularity poll went because around the same time Viz did their own national character popularity poll and to go into the bear you know my boy Rio Grants he does come in in the top 10 and number 10 hey, there you go and then we have Margaret come in at number 9 Doom come in at number 8 Wahlberg come in at number 7 Lance at number 6 Lemon at number 5 Finn at number 4 Rain at number 3 Dot at number 2 and Mash at number 1 and this is a collection of characters that I think I definitely 
definitely could get even more behind. They're all very cool, interesting characters. You know, I also like seeing uh, Milia Duel. She is ranking at number 11, you know, just recently introduced into the series when this poll came up. But yeah, she's been a fun character uh, ever since then. Uh, Ochoa also comes in there with, you know, that little gator-headed guy. That's fun. Uh, yeah, an Innocent Zero, number 16. Like, an uh, Adam Jaws, number 19. So yeah, interesting, interesting. You know what? I just appreciate that my boy Dot isn't at number two. That's all I care about. <laughs> Yeah, I think that he is more deserving of number two than Caldo, who I don't think even made the, the U.S. top 25. So there you go. I guess I guess he just wasn't I guess he just wasn't a hot enough character for uh, for English readers. No, Japanese and English readers just have different tastes uh, in who they find the most attractive. For sure. <laughs> For us, it's, uh, we, we want the guys who are flashy like Rio Grande. They have cool masks, uh, and giant <laughs> blades like Doom, or they're like cool old men like Wahlberg, or cool buff women like Margaret. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely have different tastes, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think we have another Shonen Jump poll to talk about next, that being the latest Undead Unluck poll. Uh, this one, however, I thought was, uh, really interesting, actually. Yeah, because it's an interesting take. It's not just a character popularity poll. It is a best couple popularity poll. And what that means even more specifically is like best team popularity poll, I would say. Because there's definitely a lot of ships in here, but also there's a lot of like just pairings of characters who like work really well together that people really like. So like going kind of from bottom up here at number 10 with 338 votes, we have Shen and his master... I remember that arc and that fight he had with his master. And it was, uh, I can understand the reasoning that has been translated here. That, hey, these guys are, like, both, like, real fighting enthusiasts. And they have, like, kind of different mean of, like, how they want to express that in terms of, like, what martial arts means to them. And, yeah, I think I like these comment here. Like, you know, even if it's possible for them to completely, like, reconcile their differences, you know, you want to see them fight, have a rematch. Which, yeah, that could be pretty cool i mean mm -hmm. last time he checked in on like shen's master he was just like being kept in the union's like kind of prison and like he was like kind of doing some sort of a spiritual training in order to get stronger and they just kind of left him there and we haven't really checked back in on him so yeah i wonder in what way he'll return to the story Next, at number nine, we have Chikara and Top. Those two worked really well together in that whole uh, section of the spring arc, you know, uh, because Top's power, you know, he is like to can run really, really, really fast. And then Chikara is like unmoved so he can like stop him in his tracks so that he doesn't like overdo it because if he goes too fast, it can be lethal and stuff. So when they were fighting that one member of Under, like they worked very well together. That was good. Yeah, they're fighting Creed. So that was a very very good teamwork there and so ever since then like those characters have uh yeah had a good like kind of friendship association with each other number eight another good pair of friends friend slash friendly rivals is shen and andy and yeah it's always nice to see them work together and then at number seven is andy and gina 
who Gina was only in the series for a short period of time, but there was definitely some history between them that was discussed and explored during that interaction, during that fight that they had. And yeah, like, I wouldn't mind, like, a flashback to see kind of more of their relationship as well. Yeah, I think we, I might be remembering this incorrectly, I feel like we've gotten, like, bits and pieces here and there, like, we flashed back to around that time before, but yeah, we haven't, we never really got, like, a full flashback. Yeah. At number six, we've got Top and Ishin. I feel like they started shipping these characters <laughs> after the spring art. Uh, and I was like, where did this come from? I didn't realize that they had a crush together because Andy was like pulling Top and Shikara inside. And it's like saying, hey, you know, I know you guys have crushes like uh, Top, you have a crush on Ishin, don't you? you Shikara, you have a crush on Tatiana. I'm like, hmm? <laughs> was this established in the series, explored in the series? This, this feels like it comes out of a, Andy, a nowhere. A- Andy might as well just put them together and went now kiss <laughs> no i was like oh no this is this is ship and like everyone was joking at the time I was like oh is that they're trying to just like you know kind of straight ship these characters together because everyone was like oh chop and shikara no they are the guys with the connection like they're they've got the thing going there but then it's like oh no we gotta straighten them out <laughs> so it's like oh man i didn't know andy was a dirty dirty shipper <laughs> yeah <laughs> at least seen that way uh, but yeah, so I don't really know what to make of the relationship yet because the interactions they've had together have not stood out as much to me, but uh, it is like a pairing that the series is pushing, so hopefully that'll get explored more. Number five is Rip and Lakla, which, yeah, you know, has been a pretty, you know, tight, interesting relationship kind of from the beginning of the introduction of these characters and especially with their backstory explored recently and kind of the, the tragedy of their ending. So, yeah, I mean, very compelling characters. And as far as couples go, they are like a, a power couple of characters in terms of characters who really, really care about each other. I don't know if, like, Rip has romantic feelings for Lothla as, like, it's implied Lothla has because of, you know, the whole history that they have shared with, you know, Lothla's sister and stuff like that. But nonetheless, like, you know, they are characters who, you know, really care about each other and, like, fought and was willing to sacrifice themselves to save each other and also to save Lothla's sister. It's the tragedy that they were unable to do that, but then the hope that, hey, maybe in the next loop that can happen. So, yeah, very, very good pair of characters there. At number four, we have Billy and Tatiana. You know, we touched in a bit about like kind of the mentally kind of big buttery role that, you know, Billy had towards Tatiana uh, when he first like was kind of announcing his betrayal. And we had like little conflict between them. And since then, that's been followed up in a sweet way as Billy has come to Tatiana's rescue in recent chapters and has really been like, hey, you don't bully basically my daughter figure. And he's like fighting back against Ruin. So, you know, I think that's a sweet relationship there that has kind of had a really good moment recently especially and number three we have victor and juice and yeah like they also have like an interesting relationship that was explored in the story and i think i wouldn't mind even seeing more of that of like their previous uh, partnerships or previous loops but yeah like i think that they are interesting pair of characters together in terms of like kind of their conflicting uh, philosophies and ideals that ended up you know coming to a head and then number two, of course, Shen and Mui, I think, you know, as far as couples go, uh, you know, it's 
them and then of course Andy and Vuko at number one that are like kind of the big two in terms of how prominently they're explored and yeah I think they're very very sweet relationships yeah there's no way Andy and Fuko wouldn't have gotten number one Nah, that would have been really surprising. And they were far and away number one, you know, with 3.5 thousand more votes than Shenmue at number two. But yeah, like, I mean, Andy and Fuko definitely for a long period of time, I would say are like kind of the best couple uh, in a jump manga right now. I think I'd still stand by that. You yeah. know, they have a very compelling relationship and dynamic with each other and how they kind of affect and influence each other to change in really positive ways. And yeah, I really like the strong bond between them so for sure i think that they're a great team and definitely deserving of the crown of you know obviously undead best power couple but you know i say shannon Mui is a good second place too they had a really really good showing but yeah i thought that was interesting you know you don't see like a best couple poll that often but i think that was an interesting way to do a, a character popularity poll I feel like the closest we've seen to that, and this might be a stretch, but I feel like the closest I've seen to this kind of thing was when um, was when Gintama was still running, and they did a character popularity poll specifically to see, like, I guess, which characters they wanted to see beside Gintoki on the cover of Jump or whatever, and uh, Hijikata got that one because... Uh, you know, Gintoki and Hijikata supremacy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so th- I think that's the closest thing I've seen to that kind of thing. But still, yeah, I, I, I thought this was an interesting take on the poll. Yeah, there are some other interesting polls recently that I'm not going to go too deep into. Like Blue Box had like a first Chinatsu Grand Prix, which is like the most memorable images of Chinatsu in Blue Box <laughs> in the series. And like, I, it's not really something that I can really go over and describe the damage detail. It's but very I just visual, thought it yeah. was interesting. Yeah, you know, there's some like definitely cute panels of Chinatsu though, for sure. Definitely some from kind of their trip over the summer to kind of this little seaside town. Uh, they had like a kind of private vacation around Chinatsu's birthday, so I can recognize images from there that were very memorable. But yeah, like, you know, Chinatsu has had a lot of really nice, cute little moments, you know, but where's our Hina Grand Prix results? That's that's what I'm interested in, you know. Uh, Hina all the way. Uh, similarly, as far as like jump rom comes go, Kaguya-sama, Wiz uh, actually ran a poll for it to count down like the top five battles, you know, conflicts between <laughs> the characters in the series were there. And yeah, that's also something that I won't go too deep into, but I was surprised, you know, there are a lot of, you know, ones to roll over, but a lot of the early ones, uh, especially, you know, actually made a good showing in this poll. Maybe because they were being earlier they were so iconic but like the very this old made one the very second chapter came in at like number four which was huh wow i mean there are a lot of like really great ones you know from later on the series as well like number one one was uh the happy life game chapter 57 which kagasama has a series 200 chapters in so that's still pretty early on but like there are a lot of chapters that are from within the first 10 chapters like the brain teasers chapter four that came in number nine uh the 20 questions the eight chapter that was at number six so yeah that's that's quite surprising that a lot of the early chapters like ranked uh, pretty highly even compared to like later stuff and yeah if you want to look at the full list you can go through that as well mm-hmm. we'll leave a link in the show notes yeah but i, I like seeing some more untraditional uh, character popularity polls for sure 
Now, talking about jump stuff leads us to talk about some serialization updates, uh, and these relate to kind of the next piece of news when we're talking about like kind of app uh, content availability in general. But yeah, so Kiru Kill Me and Stage S, uh, both Jump Plus series, both have gone on indefinite hiatus recently. Stage S was quite a surprising one because Stage S just got added to Manga Plus not too long ago, and we'll surely talk about it when we next do a simulpubs check. But yeah, it's a little bit surprising that these series have kind of gone on hiatus and it's not really kind of known right now when they'll return, you know, like Kiru Killy's hiatus that we were not given a reason for. Stage S is due to the after Harikawa's kind of health issues. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, like, when these series might return. Well, actually, it looks like uh, Stage S is already resuming. So okay. huh. perhaps that hiatus uh was short-lived after all but yeah like uh kiru kill me we still don't know when it's going to return yeah i feel like there was just the day where i was scrolling through twitter and i'd seen like just multiple announcements of like multiple different series on jump plus like taking indefinite hiatuses and i just couldn't help but think like man i hope everyone there is okay yeah i mean we see a lot of authors now taking breaks to mind their health uh even recently you know the author brewery dragon took a one week break because you know they weren't being mindful of their health and they were kind of uh like overworking themselves just too early on so they just took a one week break just you know after the fifth chapter so we're seeing more and more willingness at least to take breaks now to be mindful of health so that's a good thing but also it's a still a worrying thing that authors are still being put in position that you know they have are overworking themselves that their health is being compromised so you know it really goes to show that yeah there needs to be more of a reasonable schedule to allow them to publish their work yeah. uh, and a uh, lot more care and attention being paid that they can live healthy lifestyles. Yeah, it's uh, it's not great. I will say that. But uh, if I can cover this next piece of news, we have one author coming back after uh, a two-year break, and that is uh, Siyoshi Takaki uh, with Heart Gear. Originally, Heart Gear over at Shonen Jump Plus had to take a break uh, after its 29th chapter back in May 2020 due to Takaki's uh, poor health, quote unquote. Then they added that uh, it wasn't anything serious, uh, at least nothing that required hospitalization. So that's good. Uh, But it seems like they are well enough to continue Heart Gear. And that will resume on August 17th, which is pretty cool. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that Takaki is well enough to come back to Heart Gear because uh, I remember Heart Gear when we originally talked about it on the show uh, was a series that uh, I really enjoyed when it started. I think I'm still a little behind on it. But from what I remember, I really enjoyed what I read of it. And I, I do want to get back to it eventually. So uh, I'm glad it's coming back. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, it's great that they were able to take uh, the break they needed to kind of recover the health and kind of retool. And yeah, I'm glad to see them now in a place that they're able to resume the manga. And I'm very much looking forward to following it along again. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, now we'll move on to just some updates in terms of things that are available kind of on apps or digitally. You know, since we're on the subject of jump stuff, you know, a very exciting new addition has been made to visit Shonen Jump app and vault. And that is the entirety of Saint Seiya is now available on there. Finally, finally. you know, it's been a couple <laughs> of years since the, you know, jump vault 
app started up and Saint Seiya has always been one of those glaring emissions despite being sold digitally by Viz but every chapter is now available in there and that's really nice to see and you know it's kind of interesting that they were able to do that a little bit ahead of time apparently there's going to be a big announcement about the film like the, the film the live action film that's been in the works for a couple of years is having a panel at San Diego Comic Con uh, I'll probably be able to report back to you guys about what happened there I mean by the time you're listening to this uh, it'll already have happened uh, hopefully i've already been able to attend it and see it but yeah i mean i, I wonder if this was done like in anticipation that hey saint sia might be getting like a second wind or maybe it just took a while for them to kind of work out the rights issues with it but hey it's encouraging that you know if saint sia can get at it then maybe they can work out some stuff to get other you know current emissions added in there please <laughs> Especially like uh, Tagashi stuff. Assuming, hoping Hunter Hunter will be uh, coming back uh, in the near future, and as a simulpub from Viz, you know, we'd hope that uh, Hunter Hunter Yu Show can get out to the vault. But yeah, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff still missing beyond that, like Slam Dunk and Ice Shield. But hey, great Saint Seiya, uh, a great classic now available for you to read uh, on the vault. It's a step in the right direction. Also, I just want to say really quickly, as someone who did an entire read through podcast cast over at our patreon patreon.com slash manga mavericks uh it's really nice to see that saint seiya is finally available in the vault and hey you know what if you end up reading it on the shun jump app and you want to listen to our uh, read through podcast the manga mavericks book club uh you can uh, you can now listen to that you can follow along with us it's really cool because i there were definitely times during that podcast where doc and i just just kept bemoaning the fact that it wasn't on the it wasn't on the <laughs> app and it was kind of annoying for a while but it's on there now that's all that matters you can read it i would recommend it saint say is very fun absolutely and yeah so there's been a lot of other new kind of like app updates uh, additions so following up on higashi mura's uh, one of her manga being added to Webtoon earlier this year. Another one of her series has been added to Tapa. So on these online, like kind of Webtoon platforms. And that's uh, really cool. Do you remember me? Basically, the entirety of the series launched on Tapas on July 12th. And yeah, like this was a title that she ran in Kako Japan's Pacoma service in 2020. And I'm very much looking forward to reading more of this. Hadn't gotten quite the chance, but I really enjoy the Fake Affair, the Webtoon series, or the series that was published on Webtoons earlier this year. And, you know, this seems to be another series in the same vein. A woman in her 30s, like, kind of working through both work and relationship issues. And, yeah, I very much am keen to read just more manga by Higashimura in general. I'm glad that they're being made more available to us. So, very much looking forward to more of that. Uh, other series that have been released digitally recently include Kata Kawa releasing I'm Quitting Heroing the manga is now a digital exclusive on Bookwalker first three volumes are available and this is anticipation of like there's an anime for the series of the works that High Dive is already licensed and coming out pretty soon so yeah so this is a, another one of those like kind of fantasy stories where you know we have like a, a hero who's like kind of grappling with the fact that oh he saved the world from a demon lord and now he's like well what do I do with this strength? It's not really useful in peacetime, so I'm kind of not really having a place in normal society. So, you know, the forces of good kind of rejected him, so he's like, huh, you know what? I'll go and work with the demon lord.
Lord and the Demon Lords are on me. So I think that's kind of an interesting take at Premise Explorer. Like, well, the hero has kind of accomplished what he wanted to do. What's next for him? Because there's just not a lot of use for his skill set in like an era of peacetime. So he goes to kind of work for his former enemies and presumably not like as a <laughs> to join their army as like a, you know, conquer another villain, but like kind of maybe reform their society. Maybe his strength is more useful there. So I, I think that's an interesting take. And so, yeah, that series is available on Bookwalkers through Kurokawa, and you can check that out. Okay, just a small correction about what Lum said about the I'm Quitting Heroing anime when they said that the manga was being made available on Bookwalker in anticipation for the upcoming anime. Uh, the anime is actually already all aired, and it's all, all available on High Dive. You can watch all 12 episodes of it. And admittedly, I didn't really realize this until I kind of had the thought while editing this episode because uh, Grant actually mentioned to me on our latest episode of our Manga Mavericks Book Club read-through of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 2, Battle Tendency, which again, you can listen to at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. I, I promise that wasn't an intentional plug at the start, but it is, and here we are. Um, but yes, Grant did uh, mention on the latest episode of that that uh, he had been writing reviews for the anime at the time. And, you know, we'll link those in the show notes for anybody who wants to read those reviews. Uh, from what Grant has told me, yeah, it seems like this series is pretty interesting and actually pretty cool. Uh, so I might check it out one day, maybe, eventually. I don't know. We'll see. Um, it sounds interesting at the very least. So I at least wanted to make a correction that uh, the anime is all available for your viewing pleasure if you want to check it out. But that's about it. Back to the show. Going into some more app licenses and additions, Comic-Key announced that they have added a lot of different titles to their servers, a couple titles from Ablaze Publishing, about a dozen titles that DMP had that were Ozma Tezka's manga. Currently, they seem to have added like Carmen Punishment, Barbara Ludwig, and Millie Ryan Glasscastle, so, you know. DMP, at least putting those test titles for use and putting them up on Comic-Key for you to check them out if you have not yet. And then there are some new titles that they're getting through a partnership with Hakusensha, Banish Wilderness's Husband, Biting to Me, Eriko Saman's Attack, and Ome-san's Overwhelming Obsession. They are finally making good on a Shoueisha partnership. You know, I think that's been in the Rumblings for a long time, but they're adding a Shoueisha series to their roster with Pocha Meshi, Stuff Your Cheeks With Love. And then they also have made a partnership with Golem Factory to add Lady Beast and Iris the Lady and her smartphone. And they also are still encouraging original artists to kind of publish their works on Comic Key, kind of like Webtoon. And they have these very ambitious plans to launch 20 series a month, which, you know, mm. how are you sustaining that? You know, <laughs> probably not paying your staff as much you should probably is what is what i would assume well that's that's the answer there so i mean uh we'll see how that goes they're Boy. gonna have more panels at enemy north enemy nyc later this year so uh, we'll check in on how they're doing but yeah they're adding a lot more content to their service a lot of interesting stuff so if you want like all one place to, to read a lot of interesting titles particularly the ozimateska titles you know kamaki might be worth checking out for that mangamo has also added a lot of new stuff recently a couple new titles like my stepsister who tells me to die every day tries to hypnotize me so i'd fall for her by tanaka doriru uh, which is about a high schooler who has like <laughs> written light novels that are like forbidden love stories they're not really selling that well but it's like stepsister is like kind of a psycho and is like trying to seduce him through hypnosis and it doesn't work but he kind of like plays along with that and then his childhood friend is <laughs> trying to rescue him so it's kind of like kind of a yandere story about a 
crazy stepsister. Dog, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah, not for me. Especially because the character design, she does not look yanderate enough. You know, if she was more crazy, it might be interesting. But Yeah, she doesn't look crazy enough. That That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Next, we got Kami-sama Detke by Shomashida. This is about, like, a debt collector who is, like, surrounded in a forest by grotesque monsters and they're gods who want to make him to play a game and so he's an unwilling participant uh, that he's got to team up with other play worlds in this situation and participate in a bunch of dead sports so you know this is has like kind of a horror death game premise to it you know pretty kind of tired well-trodden territory but i think the the creepy design of the you know monsters uh could make it stand out it's like oh like they're, they're being forced to play this by these like grotesque like surreal god creatures so that could be an interesting angle to that yeah look i don't like to generalize i try not to do that but i couldn't help but think when i first saw this my first thought was another one <laughs> Another death game monster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just can't get away from them. Next, we got Cardian Angel, the games to bring girls together. This comes to us by Mayu Sugiura and Shadowman. And this is about an esports club, Ooh, you know, okay. a bunch of teens kind of banding together to play like esports. You know, the two people who found the club actually don't have much experience in esports. And there's already like an elite esports club by advanced students at the school. And they don't have enough members to form their own team. So it's kind of like a underdog story about like kind of these newbies to the world of esports kind of forming their own club and then kind of working their way up to the top and this sounds like a lot of fun so i'll definitely be checking this out it's worth noting that all these titles that i've been mentioning are available on mangano right now so you can definitely just check them out immediately if if you uh, find them interesting that's cool that's cool um you know i'm pretty sure i have mentioned on the podcast at one point that i would be up for an esports manga so i might have to check this out yeah, I think uh, we mentioned that as far back as when we covered Ino Genten from uh, Naoshikomi. So for sure, uh, it's nice to see someone make good on that premise. Next, we've got Yonezawa-san is done being human by Eiseki Kawata. And this is about a office manager who's like really cool, looked up to by everyone. And he never gets his, you know, fetters ruffled by his like grumpy botch. But, you know, he has a kind of a secret hobby he's like into pet play and he's looking for a new master to kind (laughs) of meet his needs and you know it turns out the person he kind of connects with to play that role ends up being a subordinate from his work so you know kind of a spicy workplace comedy here Uh, i think that there was a series that 70s announced for like their new spicy imprint that has a similar vibe to this. But also, I think it's a little similar to Tramps Like Us, maybe from a different perspective. But yeah, I mean, it seems like visual seems cute and seems to be interesting uh, exploration of kind of the subculture uh, and like kind of an interesting relationship dynamic. So yeah, I could be interested in this one. And next we have I Don't Understand What My Sister's Friend is Thinking by Ray, which is about a girl named Chi whose big brother is like dumbfounded when uh, his younger sister's friend, you know, is, is kind of a quiet girl who doesn't say much, spaces out a lot. You know, she, she's wondering what's going on in her head, but uh, she has romantic girls of her own. And clearly, probably she has a crush on him and stuff. So it's it's just a story about kind of this young trio uh, as they kind of, you know, learn about each other and just a nice slice of life about love and grow out. So yeah, that seems like a charming little slice of life rom-com. But yeah, so kind of an eclectic collection of new titles added to Mangamo. 
I definitely think the esports one and then the the pet play one sounds most interesting in terms of premise. But yeah, so definitely something different for you guys to check out if you find the descriptions of the titles uh, interesting. But also, ASCII announced that they are adding a couple new tiles to their service as well, and new simulpubs at that, which is very exciting. First off, we'll mention something you can already read there now, a new Glacier Bay Books title, Invisible Played by Mississippi. It's uh, 13 stories from the author, who is known as like a Kyoto-based painter, comic artist. And yeah, so it is very cool. You can check that out right now. They've been hosting the chapters a couple at a time every week. So I think by the time, I think it's coming up on, they'll have caught up on it uh, pretty soon here. But yeah, their new simul pubs that they're adding in August are Turning the Tables on the Seatmate Killer, which is being done by Bachi Miyako. And then the original work was Erasanzui, and the original character designer was Mizori Saba. This is a manga adaptation of a light novel. It's basically a, about a character who, you know, is like the, called the notorious seatmate killer because, like, they string guys along before breaking their hearts. But uh, the protagonist, Yuki, might be just so clueless to this person's uh, intentions. Uh, he might be immune to her charms. And so it's like kind of a fierce kind of psychological kind of cop competition where she's trying to kind of get him to fall in love with her and so he, he she can break his heart uh, but he's just not taking he's just so oblivious so that's easily kind of a, a fun take on a rom-com maybe a little kajasama-esque and yeah so again this is gonna come out in august as is my dear detective mitsuko's case files by natsumi ito which is about Mitsuko, who is Japan's first female detective in the 1920s, and a handsome college student shows up with a new case for her and ends up uh, becoming his her new assistant. And so the series just follows Mitsuko and Saku as they like solve cases and explore the changing cultural landscape of Showa era Japan and go a little closer along the way in a mystery series that promises to be very fashionable as well. So this one, in terms of premise, sounds really fun, intriguing, particularly definitely one I'm keen to check out as I'm sure we will when these drop on ASCII we'll definitely review the first couple chapters let you guys know what we think but yeah some cool new additions coming to ASCII here and potentially you know uh, at Otokan maybe they'll announce even more stuff I guess we'll check back in with you guys then as well but yeah I'll definitely be there I'll definitely tweet out anything that uh really sticks out uh, any announcements they make but you know there's a lot of cool new stuff being added to apps and online manga platforms but um surprisingly uh there's stuff being taken away and suddenly for reasons that uh we don't really know why so to give some context uh, around the end of June or mid-June a bunch of Kodansha simulpods practically all of them were uh kind of just stopped they stalled like they went on break even though the series were still going on in japan uh particularly you know the weekly shonen magazine stuff of like eden zero and four nights of the apocalypse and shagara fatir uh you know the weekly chapters still coming on japan but uh, the simul pub stopped and like of course like all the platforms carrying those simul pubs uh you know stopped carrying them for a while and we were wondering well what's up with this all we knew, the only message we knew is that oh, it's because of licensor requests. And what does that mean? What is the, some sort of contractual issue here? What is going on behind the scenes? And we still don't know fully what happened behind the scenes. But as of now, you know, a bunch of series that, you know, gone on break because of this, like, uh, weird Kanjo Simulpub stall have returned. So Eden Zero, Sign of Affection, World of Summoning to Your Attorney, Card Captor, Clear Card, Arc, 
uh, Drifting Dragons, Ghost and Shell Human Anger with Toby GP and Wave. Uh, listen to me, they're all back as simulpubs uh, on ASCII, on Crunchyroll, other platforms that they're on. But the following simulpubs have just been completely discontinued and completely removed from these platforms. Four Nights of the Apocalypse, Shangri-La Frontier, and Heroic Legend of Arslan. And I'm really surprised and I'm... Not sure why that was the case. Uh, you know, as of July 18th, they're no longer able to read. I, I really wish I had the time to have caught back up with these series before they got taken off, but I was just been so busy. But it really sucks that the simul has been discontinued. I mean, I mentioned Forest Apocalypse was like one of my favorite new titles of last year. I was really enjoying that series. And I don't know why, not, you know, Seven Deadly Sins for most of its run was running as a simulpubs through Kodansha. I, I don't know what happened behind the scenes that Nakaba Suzuki or someone else made the decision that no, this is no longer going to be happening. And Arslan also is a huge surprise. That's been a simulpub for years, and I wonder what's going on there. So it's very, very odd. I don't know what happened that caused like kind of this like licensing conflict or this stall and the simulpubs being run for a month, and then I don't know what is the decision or Tom Arslan's behind removing these three titles in particular. I guess the silver lining is that of course Kadanta USA still is releasing these titles in print, but it's a real shame that you won't be able to read new chapters as they come out anymore. And uh, I think that's very unfortunate. I, I still am not sure why this ended up happening. Yeah, that's really weird. I, I can't think of a reason why this would be happening other than maybe they have to renegotiate some contracts or something. I'm not really entirely sure. I hope that's the case anyway. Yeah, maybe it is some contract renegotiation thing. But again, because of like how long Seven of the Sins and Arthur ran as some of in particular, I'm, I'm surprised those titles in particular have been taken down. Um, But I, again, I guess we'll have to see if they may be re-added in the future. And I hope they are because uh, it's, it'd be a shame for those time hosts to just have completely been discontinued. But hey, I guess uh, I'll have to continue with them in the volumes if that's really the case. To move on to some good news, we, you know, were hoping this would happen, but it has, the management of Seven Seas has made the right decision to recognize the United Workers of Seven Seas Union, and yeah, and do that just voluntarily. So this eliminated the need for a National Labor Relations Board conducted a legend, and now negotiations are in progress, and uh, negotiations uh, will probably continue on for a couple more months, but this is an encouraging sign you know, that they will be able to campaign for better working conditions for Seven Seas employees and freelancers, better rates, better benefits. And I am very glad to see that, again, management made the right decision in the end. Definitely, you know, I think the pressure put on it helped for sure. But hey, I'm glad that this outcome is happening. And I am looking forward to seeing like uh, what they are able to, you know, glean from the negotiations in terms of better working conditions for everyone there. Mm -hmm, For sure. This is good news. Absolutely. And a very smart of them to do it just before Anime Expo 2. Because with the announcements they made at Anime Expo, uh, I'm sure they didn't want this baggage to linger over their heads as they made them. Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah. You know, I think that was the good calculated decision making on the part of the workers union is that like, hey, we know that this big event is coming up. So we're going to try in this time to put pressure on the management to just accept us. And I'm glad that the efforts paid off. So really good on them and all their great work organizing. 
Now we're going to lead off with a few industry related pieces before we get into our discussion proper. One is a big story that we've kind of been following for a while now, but uh, it's come to pass. Uh, Ken Akamatsu, his ambitions to run and gain a seat in Japan's House of Counselors has paid off. He is the first manga creator in Japan's uh, legislature. And yeah, so he is a politician uh, as part of the LDP party. And um, yeah, I guess we'll see if he makes good on his self-proclaimed promises to protect kind of freedom of expression in manga, which, uh, <laughs> you know, it seems to translate to being able to sexualize underage characters and uh, draw things uh, that may be problematic without criticism. So uh, cool. Love uh, it. Yeah. We will see uh, what actual impact this will have. But yeah, I mean, this is very much, well, you know, you can't cast stones. Like, all over the country, there's weird things like celebrities who kind of make it big in Parliament. Uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, especially cannot, like, customs, oh, this is strange. But it is kind of very notable that, wow, the first Wengaka to ever become a, a politician. Very, very interesting. And another mangaka related story that I thought was interesting can lead into our discussion here is that the author of Booty Royale, Ru Takato, is retiring from the manga industry. And, you know, we don't know if it's like permanent or temporary, but they made the announcement on July 10th. Their series is going on temporary hiatus, which is interesting that it's going on hiatus without being canceled. So maybe their plans to pass the torch, or I don't know. Maybe they're not turning down the possibility they could return to it one day. But basically, their reasoning for going into retirement is that, you know, because he has started like a family with, you know, young children, he's like kind of find it more difficult to draw manga, sexual nature, you know, with boobs and sex. And so he might change his mind if his household situation changes. Uh, he might continue it if that changes. But, you know, he's also mentioned that he was kind of getting a little tired of like softcore, a pornographic and erotic manga and battle manga, you know, but he's satisfied with the work he did. But yeah, he was also kind of been like, oh, well, maybe it's also time to, to put it past me. So I just find that interesting that this author is like retiring from the industry because they felt, oh, my work is like just too erotic. Like they're kind of retiring from being a mangaka just whole cloth. When, you know, we're going to talk about Gingaro Tagami's work and Gingaro Tagami has broadened his audience by like writing old ages and like kind of mainstream focused work when, you know, his kind of bread and brother the work he built his career off of is like kind of the hardest like roughest hairiest bdsm manga that you'll ever read uh and i feel that is just an interesting contrast it's like this author feels like i'm going to retire from these three whole clock whereas tagame he's still doing both he's still making his hardcore erotic <laughs> stuff and just these like family friendly like mainstream works to get adapted into like television dramas and winning awards overseas and i just thought that was kind of an interesting kind of contrast and perspective before we lead into like our discussion of my brother's husband and just kind of the duality of an artist who can draw some of the kind of most rawest like works exploring sexual desire and then stories that are just so sensitive and exploring really intimate relationships between people as they're like 
kind of coming to understandings about each other. And I just find that so interesting. But yeah, I think that covers our news that we wanted to mention today. So, brother, I think it's time to talk about my brother's husband. Yeah, let's do that. Excellent. Uh, Shall we talk about my brother's husband? Yes. Yes. So uh, I I think we should move on to our our next series we're going to be talking about here. Um, One that I think is probably going to become one of my new favorite series. I'll be perfectly honest. Uh, Known as My Brother's Husband. Yes, My Brother's Husband, uh, Gengaro Tagame, who is very well known for his Bara manga, which depict like some pretty, uh, a lot of heavy... Hairy man having some pretty rough sex, and so this is a pretty, pretty. Uh, I, I was talking about good bondage. Uh, I'm going to throw out here, Gengaro Tagame, good bondage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, not featured in this series. Yes, this is a big deviation from his usual fare. This is more of a slice of life family drama story that takes a very like a depth look into like prejudices against, like, gay people in Japan and, like, misconceptions, like, some people can have about them. And then also just about the story about, like, this this family kind of just coming together and, like, you know, a dad gets to ha- has his mind kind of changed about, like, certain things thanks to the influence of his daughter and also just starting to interact with, you know, his brother's husband, Mike, who comes to Japan to mourn, uh, you know, his husband's and the main character's, Daichi's brother's passing. And it's just a really open and, like, kind of frank discussion about misconceptions, like, people can have about gay people and, like, how unfounded a lot of the assumptions are and also how hard it is to, like, fight prejudices, but how also... In the innocent eyes of a child, like, they don't really think about or see these things, and they, like, accept it as normal. And, like, the hopeful, optimistic message of, like, acceptance that can come in the future, thanks to that. Yeah, if there's something that this series does well, aside from a lot of things, really, that I would have to point out, it's that this series does a very good job of really, um of showing the differences between how adults and children see things. And those are some of the poor, those are, those are some of the best scenes I think in the entire series so far. Right. Cause Daichi has this, like, there's often scenes in the book where Daichi will like envision like something, a, a particular reaction that he expects Kana to have, but, like, in reality, Kana will have, like, the complete opposite reaction. When, like, uh, Kana asks, men can marry other men? And, like, Daichi thinks, like, oh, she's gonna respond, like, oh, that's weird, but, like, oh, well, why can't they marry men in Japan if they can marry overseas? So, you know, like, Kana is, like, really, like, accepting and, like, open to the idea of, like, gay relationships, whereas Daichi has all these, like, misgivings and misconceptions about it that get continually challenged the more he gets to realize that Mike is just, like, another human being. And the love he had for his brother is, like, no different from, like, the love any other person, like, straight or otherwise, would experience for another person. Yeah, I, I'm I'm looking at the page right now, and Daichi just assumes that Kana thinks 
oh, men marrying each other is weird because, oh, well, men marrying each other, isn't that weird? But, like, Kana thinks it's weird because, oh, well, it's weird that it's okay overseas, but not here. Yeah. Like, what's up with that? And another great scene is, like, when Kana asks Mike, like, who was the husband and who was the wife in, like, Mike and, uh, Daiki's, Ryoji's relationship, and, like, Mike just... You know, where he simply explains to her that, like, they were both husbands because, like, a husband is a man and Ryoji and him were both men. So, you know, they were, they were both each other's husband and Kana gets it just immediately. Like, it, it just makes sense to him. And Ryoji was but, but, like, basically. And, They're basically explaining the logic puzzle that doesn't need to be a logic puzzle. Yeah, and because Daichi, you know, himself was, like, assuming the same thing. He, like, like when Kana asked the question, he, like, spit out his dinner and, like, was thinking, Kana, watch your mind, because he thought that was, like, a rude thing to ask. But, like, when he, when he thinks about it, like, he realizes, you know, he, he thinks about, like, why he, like, just made the assumption about that and why that would be, like, uncomfortable subject discussion. And it's because, like, he... Was a zoo, he was like pigeonholing like a gay relationships and uh, what couples and marriages are is something that's naturally between men and women, and that like in a homosexual relationship, like one of the partners would have to take up like the role of the opposite sex, but that's just not the case. And like during this moment, like Daichi kind of his eyes are kind of opened that like he doesn't really know like anything like there's no like no one's playing like another role like they're just themselves they're just people you know and like they're equal partners in their in their relationship yeah i'm i was actually kind of surprised at how um how early on in uh in like i guess about the halfway point because uh, it's four volumes long um altogether i was kind of surprised with how uh how much of a turnaround uh, Daichi as a character has in terms of his views on on um, on gay marriage and whatnot, and how I, I was I was I was I was pleasantly surprised at the at the kind of turnaround he had by the end of what would essentially be volume two, because um, these are being released in um, two and ones. When which, by the way, I I'm I'm actually legit upset that I don't know when the next volume of this is coming out because I do want to read the rest of this so I bad. I spent an hour trying to find out. Like I, I needed to know, <laughs> but I could probably, I could kind of understand why because I think like we were just talking on the show a couple episodes ago about how this series has just ended in Japan, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't be surprised if the fourth volume isn't even out in Japan yet. Well, and and this is the thing, but well, the fourth volume is the final volume, as I understand yes. it. So like we're we're only getting one more volume because of this format. Yeah, which like I I'm fine with a wait, knowing that that means I'll have a complete series that easily. Oh yeah. Yeah, but I, I, after after I read the first volume of this, I was I need more. Like I want to see where this goes. It's just I it's good. I really I really appreciate everything it does. Like I was talking earlier about how nice it was that um, Lesbian Ordeal with Loneliness like was able to not necessarily be a series completely about sexuality, and this is kind of like that. But it, it does revolve around Mike and his sexuality because it's. It's taking the no stupid question approach to this sort of story. I feel like this is Tagame reaching out to a wider audience that would normally read his work and go and say, I want you to understand me and what it's like being a person like me uh, by giving you not necessarily the absolute answers, but 
his answers as to how human anyone is, regardless of sexuality, but specifically he and and gay people in general, and gay men in particular, can be, despite any sort of preconceptions that may be laid at their feet by uh, a, a particularly judgmental Japanese society. Right. I think what's important about this series is that, yeah, it deals with sexuality, but, like, I think it's important that this series is told from the perspective of Yaichi, who is heterosexual. Who is who who is a straight Japanese man. Like I I think I think having the story being kind of told from mostly his perspective, I think, is an important thing. And I think it is an is an important facet to making the story just that much more universal. I wonder about that, because I feel like Yaichi is also taking a hard look at his own sexuality too throughout the book. And like you know, realizing maybe there's something he's been repressing about himself. So, you know, maybe there's, so maybe there's even, there's more behind, like, him and his I, sexuality. I, get, I, I got that feeling. About that. I got that feeling reading the book that, you know, there may be something. He may have been repressing, like, a part of his sexual identity because, like, he had these preconceived, you know, and uh, misunderstandings about what it meant to be gay. But... At the same time, like, the, the series, like, makes a point to show that it's, that these people, the gay people, like, all people aren't defined by their sexuality. Like, that's not all that there is to them, that they're people, and there's, like, all of us are, you know, human beings, and they, we experience the same thing, and, like, the love between two men, you know, has the same emotional underpinnings as love between a man and a woman, and, uh, women, and two women, you know? So I think that's like what is really great about the story is that it really like shows that it really, you know, shows that these aren't like a strange, like distant, you know, thing. These are just like every people who are living like normal everyday lives. It genuinely means a lot to me as a, as, as a bisexual person, just to see that this is trying to have such a, a well-intentioned message and reach out to people and just be like, Hey, we're people like that. That feels extraordinarily rare, especially in a particular comics industry where the stuff that comes over to English is... Fetishistic. The worst. Yes, fetishistic. I mean, particularly Yaoi. Like, it's nice to see a series that doesn't go straight to uh, purely effeminate characters interacting, falling in love, and discovering they have a magical hold that isn't quite like an anus and isn't positioned right. Yeah. Look, the yaoi hole's a real problem. Uh, <laughs> the, the, my, my lesbian ordeal alone has actually uh, uh, mentioned that in passing, and Jesus. So, like, it, it's nice. I'm not saying that Barristoff's necessarily a solution, but it's a diversity. It's a diversity of identity that I feel was drastically missing from uh, English language manga. Mm-hmm. And Oh god, there's so much stuff I can say about this as well. Like, just on the adaptation level, uh, I want to give a big shout out to how this handles uh, Mike as a native English speaker because he's Canadian. Uh, like, every time uh, an English term comes up where there isn't a convenient Japanese alternative, it will be uh, sounded out in a, a sort of a phonetic Canadian, so that like it's clear that he's he's saying it. Uh, in his own language, as opposed to in translated Japanese. Like, uh, when, when we come to the, the husband and wife role conversation, he goes, no, we're, we're both, uh, uh, husbando. And it's like, yeah, that's, cause obviously it's, it's a completely different reading experience to how it would have been in the original Japanese. And I feel like Pantheon have handled that 
so well that I, I honestly kept stopping every time it happened in the story just to admire how how good an adaptation this is. Yes. I really enjoyed the nuances in the translation myself as well. Oh, also, um, Yaichi being, being a father is kind of great. Because, I mean, saying how a lot of this is about his perceptions and, uh, and how it's perceived through the eyes of a child, which is, it's really important, you know, children of the future, the way they perceive these relationships is key. But it's, it's how being a father tempers him saying what would have been quite impulsive and harmful things that are based on his preconceptions because he, he often will only say them in private or in his own imagination because he, he's aware, it, like, just instinctively as, as a parent, as an adult human, that, that the things he says in front of his daughter will affect how she thinks about stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I think that's, it doesn't even need to be explicitly said in the story. It's communicated very well through the visuals and through this, this storytelling device of him indulging in his assumptions on how a conversation will go or his internal thoughts and then the reality not matching up to it. Right. Like, especially like later on in the book where like one of Kana's friends, you know, her parents tell her that they don't want her to hang out with their daughter because they think Kana's going to be a bad influence because they've learned, you know, about Mike. And like, she is thinking about like how, you know, devastating would be like if Kana got the idea that like, her Mike is like somehow a bad person or something or is like somehow undesirable just because other people like are, are are projecting like their misconceptions about him. And it's like, you know, that's just a, you know, very powerful scene about like how important it is for like children to kind of grow up in like a, a very accepting environment and also the challenges there are in like an aso- in a society that just doesn't like accept gay people like broadly is like especially in Japanese society but even in you know American society we still have people like that you know who think ill of gay people and mm. you know and you know that can be hard and like children especially of children who have like homosexual relatives to like you know come to terms with the fact that there are people out there who like hate one of their loved ones just because of their sexual identity. I, I feel like Tagami actually does really well to uh, point a finger uh, of a lot of Japan's prejudices towards this stuff at uh, how reserved they can be about things. There, there's a, a, a small running thread about hugs I feel like is uh, emblematic of the larger problem at Japan's societal core towards uh, any level of affection, let alone uh, what may be perceived as unconventional by them as something like a gay relationship. Like, be- because this is a society where a hug between a daughter and a father is unusual enough that even in a private setting, Yaichi is he- hesitant to even consider it and actually does not do it. Like, uh, J- Japan's repression is is brought up a few times in this series, and I, I think that's not a bad place to look at the difference that's there and what the story's doing. Yeah, actually, just kind of speaking of that, I, I, I think from the very first like two pages, double page spread, uh, whatever you want to call it, that like the 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 level of like intelligence in the series really like struck me because um. The, the the first like two pages 
of of the series are just this this what what you could tell was colored but is grayscaled obviously for the physical release um cuz color costs money um and uh it's it's just a nice double page spread of uh of you know Mike and Yaichi and uh Kana on a ship and uh the the, the first chapter of the series is called the the black ships arrive which you know I'm no Japanese history major but even I kind of caught on to that it's the, like the first double page spread and chapter title alone are an allusion to really significant changes in in Japanese culture where yeah, rival of Commodore Perry yeah where basically uh, Japan eventually started opening up to trade uh, to trade with the West kind of forcibly and that's yeah. sort of kind of the case here like Mike uh, like actually kind of like unwillingly has to, like, accepts Mike into his home. But then, yeah, where where y- Yaichi is forced to deal with change. I mean, I- ironically, because of the politeness of Japanese society, like he can't say, "Oh, don't be here." Like he he kind of has to accept because the circumstance feels forced upon him. Yeah, I mean, we see that we see that like duality in like his character and like in like those in the sequences where like he's thinking one thing but then like he actually says another thing and usually what the thing he's thinking is like a lot more aggressive and assertive and then the thing he actually says is is a little more uh you know tr- attempts to be a little more polite there's that interesting uh contrast in like what he actually actually thinks and like what he actually like says and then that also contrasts later on, of course, with Ka- the scenes with Kana and, like, his assumptions of what Kana will say and what she actually says. And, I mean, and you get to see how much he opens himself up to the possibility of, like, her being able to say anything because he has uh, the, the dream sequence where she uh, marries a woman. Yeah, it's, that's how this volume ends, and I'm interested to see where it's going to go from... In the next volume. I, I feel like how he processes that is going to dictate, like, a good chunk of the next story. But I I, I really like that, because it's almost like his subconscious is coming around, because he's considering the possibility of the person he cares about uh, the most having this sort of lifestyle, and how he would deal with that. Oh, uh, another thing. This is massively tangential, I'm sorry. But uh, I find it interesting as well. Like, Yaichi is is clearly flawed. I mean, he, he has the prejudices. But they they lay down a lot of hints. You know, he he is divorced because he used to be abusive in marriage. Like, it, it's... Which is intimated rather than outright said, but that it, it's clearly what they're intimating. It's pretty heavily implied. Mm. And I, I feel like that's... That's really interesting, because it, it's showing that an ordinary relationship can be torn apart, not just by grief, which was Mike's assumption, and both, I, I, was, I was saying this on Twitter, both Mike and me got to feel like complete idiots when Yaichi's ex-wife turned out to be alive. Yeah, that, that kind of caught me off guard, too, because I, I really... Which was great. I really just assumed that, that the wife was dead. Mm. <laughs> I guess I was genre savvy enough to, to call the fake out. <laughs> you were smarter than either of us, yeah. But like, I, I think it's just interesting because it, it shows both straight and queer relationships can be 
can be perfectly normal and flawed. Like I, I feel like that's an important angle that's being taken there. And it's not that there's love loss between the two characters. I'm pretty sure they go off to go and have sex off panel at one point. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's clearly some sort of love there, but it, it shows there are complications and difficulties. Mm -hmm. Um, I think my, probably my favorite part of the entire volume is when, um, is when the the older brother of one of Kana's friends is seen kind of sneaking around um, Yaichi's household. And when he finally catches him, it turns out that this kid just wants to talk to Mike and basically come out to him. Yeah. I I thought, I thought that was, that was probably my favorite part of the entire volume. Like I wanted to cry. That really struck me. Yeah. That was a really sweet moment. I I found that really interesting. Not not everyone gets that opportunity, and for even a fictional character to get it there, and for it to be treated so sincerely and respectfully, and like it took the step back, so you wouldn't risk uh, awkward dialogue over it, as any writer can fall into, regardless of sexuality, and instead just gave it room to breathe as as a mostly silent scene. It's told really. visually, which is great too. Mm, which is, and it's told so well visually, so well, and like uh, it, it's weird. Like I've I've never had to. Uh, to deal with the scenario of coming out myself, I, I, I basically just decided one day that I was just going to just casually drop it into conversation every now and then, and people would just kind of be like, oh, yeah, no, we we probably thought that you were bi. And I was like, yeah, that it's always been pretty obvious as far as I've been as a human being. Uh, but I, I feel like they, there is this ridiculous value here of being able to just to come out to someone who is out and have their support that, so many people in any society do not get to have. And I feel like there's a sort of, there's a, a release and a, a huge sense of relief getting to see it uh, shown on the pages in this comic. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great message. It sends a great message to, you know, young kids who are, are trying to come out. And like, it, it also speaks to the importance of like having there to be someone who's like, you can talk to about this and talk to who understands like what you're going through and like how, how meaningful and important it is to have that someone. Just someone to just someone to show you that you're normal, really. Yeah, and you know, you see you see when the kid is talking and Mike and like you see like just this wave of relief coming about him and then this he bursts out into tears and it's just like Mike, you know, puts a hand on his shoulder as he's crying. It's like, you know, just being Yeah, it's just just the experience. It's powerful of, stuff. Yeah. This comic actually does uh, uh, tearful scenes really well as well in general. Like it's, it, I feel like it doesn't come up enough in the series. But it's been a very short amount of time since uh, since Mike's husband and you know, she's brother like actually passed away, and grief isn't really part of the series. Like it's been, it, it was either one month or two months. I'm afraid about picking up my phone. I can't check. Um, but like. It takes until quite far into the volume and for Mike to be drunk for there to really be any display of grief for both him and Yaichi. And it's, it's strong and, and very subtly done on Yaichi's part. They just, they show, um, the, the moon as seen through watery eyes. Yeah. And I, that, I was, I was confused about that for a second. That, that took me a little bit to realize what was going yeah, on there. Which I feel like is how it should be because, because you don't expect him to cry either because of how he's been through the whole series. And so like just having to think about what's happening there, I think made it 
better. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would agree, actually. I, I just took it as one of those things where it's like, you know, because Yaichi's been shown to be sort of stoic and not really want to freely express himself as much as the other people around him are. I mean, they, they literally introduce him at the start of the series, like the very, very start of the series, as the one who doesn't emotionally react. Yeah, he didn't <laughs> cry at his parents' funeral. Yeah, like, that's their lead-off point, is to be like, oh, he's the one that doesn't cry. I mean, he's he's kind of emotionally stunted in a way. He doesn't know how to express, like, his real feelings and, like, l- and express his grief. Which might play into other things. Like, again, they, they intimate uh, his abuse in his previous marriage. And you think, like, how much is that also related to the fact that he's just not an emotionally open person? Like, what is there that he couldn't deal with at the time that led to that? There's, there's so much to unpack about this comic. Like, Guy, I, I'm wide-eyed right now. Like, it is... Like, before we went into this, it was my favourite comic of the year. Now we've actually talked about it for a bit, it might just be one of my favourite comics full stop. Yeah. Yeah, this, this honestly... I mean, I want to say depending on how it ends, because I obviously haven't finished it yet. Um, but I... God, I want to read the second half of this as soon as I can. Um, but for, for formality's sake, I should say, you know, depending on how it ends, this could actually become, like... This this will probably go in my superficial like top ten favorite manga of all time. Honestly, like this is this is this is becoming one of my favorite comics of all time. To be perfectly honest, like I'm really I'm just I'm just kind of shocked at how well really deals with its subject matter. Yeah, I'm I'm at you there that I'm gonna have to reorganize my favorites list because you know between this and lesbian experience, oh boy, this is this is oh I kept saying ordeal. <laughs> Sorry, There's like this whole episode, I keep saying ordeal instead of experience, which totally changes uh, yeah. the meaning of that title. <laughs> oh, again, I'm going to throw this out here, kids. If you read your comics on your phone because it's more convenient than having them on your shelves, that does mean you're going to get the names of stuff wrong a lot <laughs> because uh, phones mess with microphones. So I've not been able to check anything while talking. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, this is just this is just a good series, and I think I would put this in the same category as a Silent Voice, where I feel like this is a series that everybody should read. Yeah, I would say this about both My Brother's Husband and My Lesbian Experiences that I really wish like this yes. was these were books that like got into the hands of a lot of people, people that don't even read manga, got into some school libraries because these teach some really important like life lessons that are especially going to be really valuable for, you know, young, young people who are confused about these things. And like, it it just has such great messages that I, and I think these are the kind of stories that like anyone can, read and like empathize with and like it can really open a lot of minds as well i I feel like these are the sort of books that have the potential to be in 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 schools you know like you you look at other books that have like become such integral parts of uh of comics history for the sort of stories they tell and again my brother's husband could somehow release like the second book and it's terrible but that feels unlikely for some reason. <laughs> Almost like this first book was so good. But like, I, I, I feel like there's, there's teachable lessons and analysis you can do on these that put them not quite on the same level as books like Mouse and Barefoot again, where the historical context I feel like keeps them a little bit above. But these are definitely the sort of essential graphic novels that should be 
on a on a pedestal forever that that transcends the comic medium. If you want to go and be a hoity-toity academic who looks down on, I definitely things, yeah, you know? I definitely think the social messages espoused in these books are on par with the you know historical like insights books like Mouse and Barefoot Gang give. I definitely think they're equally valuable, and you know, mm. and uh, they should be widely distributed and like get into the hands of a lot of people like. And I, you know, the, these books have been getting a lot of praise from people outside of the manga field. Like, you look at the back of My Brother's Husband, Volume 1, and, like, the pull quotes are, like, from, you know, are comments from Alison Bechdel, author of Fun Home, and, uh, renowned comics artist. You also got Anderson Cooper of CNN, who, you know. That, that one floored me. Like, as far as, like, an interesting get, like, outside of comics, I feel like that's a really good one. And they and they even get it. I got an actual kid to give like a, a quote, or at least I I assume this is an actual kid. E- either a kid or someone with a very weird fetish, judging by the full quote. Yeah. It's like because they're like, oh yeah, this is really good, and I'm a kid, so I should know. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh god, I hope they're a kid. <laughs> oh god, but yeah. In, in fact, now that Alison Bechdel's been mentioned, like, there's another thing that this should. This should be out there as much as Dykes to Watch Out For or Fun Home. Yeah. Like, they're, they're that good. But I, I think that's about it. Really, if you, if, you, if you take anything away from this podcast, you should really read both works. Like, I, th- I, think, I think it's safe to say that we, like, highly recommend both of these works and that everybody should go read them. Mm-hmm. I really wish that this comics environment we have now where I feel like these manga are being embraced... I really wish this existed when Fantagraphics started releasing Wandering Sun. Yes, yes. Because yeah. that might have made it past eight volumes. Like, I know there were other factors, but that, that strikes me as a book that should, that should be featured on the same level as these two, as like huge things. And sadly is just only had half the series released. <laughs> like, oh, that's tragic. I, I thought those were like, weren't there two in ones? I thought they were pretty big books. I, I don't know if they were touring ones, but they definitely did not finish the series, uh, citing low sales, uh, an uninterested wider audience, and whisper it, Scanlations. Oh, uh, did not, my God. Did not help them finish releasing it, which I, I'm not using this as a moment to take a platform on that because you'll do you. Like, I, I talk about this stuff enough on Twitter. But God, God, do I wish that they finished releasing Wandering Sun. Gosh dang, darn it, Scanlations, darn, man. Uh, yeah, uh, but th- for what is out, you should definitely check out that series as well. Very important. Yeah, let's 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 just let's just be happy that I think we're we're we live in a better time in terms of I think the manga and just comics industry in general. Oh, definitely. That, Absolutely. That, that, that this stuff is able to be widely released. Which means that I can uh, I can get back to my activities of the last couple of years, which is uh, trying to get my favourite LGBT uh, manga book licensed and released in the US. Because God knows I have pestered a good few publishers uh, trying to sell them on the virtues of Bokrano Hentai, and well, one day, one day they'll release it. And a market that's accepting books like this, you know, it might be interested in an amazing ten volume series about gender identity. Yeah, we definitely need more comics like this that tackle these subjects out here in the West. 
I, I just wanted an opportunity there. That, that was just my clever little way of just trying to sneak in a, a plug for another LGBT book that people should read. So I'm clever like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Huh. Um, but I, th- I think unless we have anything else to say, I think that might do it for the episode. I think so. This was a great discussion. We're all super passionate about these books, If in case you couldn't tell. And yeah, obviously we highly recommend them. These are two of the best books of the year. Isn't it just really nice to like talk about books that we all feel positively about? Yes. Like, I, I feel like it's, it's, just, it's just a real good time. Yes. I, I'm the worst at comics negativity. Like as much as I uh, crapped all over Cross Account earlier, like to, comics that you can just love without reservation are, are such a good time. And I mean, that's part of why these books are, are books that people should be reading. Is they're just they they're good, one hundred percent good books. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm just I'm. I'm beside myself. It, it it feels so rare that there's comics where you just don't really have much, in a way, negative stuff to say, or at the least where the 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 passion and the joy you have for the book like overrides everything else. So these books are special. Definitely. Oh yes. This podcast is special, guys. <laughs> we had a, we had a happy time. It's a special <laughs> podcast. Yeah. I'm trying to find like the most saccharine ending here. <laughs> Perhaps the real My Brother's Husbands were the friends we made along the way. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Welcome to uh, another bonus pod for the patrons out there. Hi, patrons. So... Uh, just like what we did last time with uh, Solo Exchange Diary, we're uh, we're kind of revisiting a few series here that we uh, covered on uh, on our uh, LGBT manga podcast we did back in 2017, which means uh, we are going to be revisiting uh, My Brother's Husband from Gagoro Tagame. And so, yeah, uh, with us today, we have our good friend and uh, contributor to the show, Maxi Bernard. How's it going, buddy? It's going pretty well, thank you. Pleasure to be here as always. Boy, it really only feels like yesterday that we talked about the first volume of My Brother's Husband. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but it was literally three years ago, almost at this point. Oh my god. It is hard to believe. I can't believe it has taken us so long to revisit it and read the second volume on the show. At least slightly in our defense, the time since we recorded it and when the second volume actually came out was pretty sizable anyway. (laughs) So, like... It was quite a bit. Like, the second volume came out, like, a year and a half later. Jeez. There you go. It's about the same gap between when we recorded Volume 1, when Volume 2 came out, and then the same gap between when Volume 2 came out and when we're recording this, (laughs) pretty much. (laughs) That's true. We had to wait so long that now, at this point, you can get My Brother's Husband in a complete omnibus edition, collecting all 28 chapters of it. And, more than that, I don't know if this will continue to be the case, but if people are very lucky and it might still be the case, um, the volumes, the individual volumes, are still, like, heavily discounted on Kendor. Oh, wow. Like, I, I picked mine up for the equivalent of $6, the second volume, which is pretty rad. Yeah, it's really good. So, it's a really easy and accessible series to, like, purchase. So, yeah, I mean, everyone should pick this story up. It's short, it's sweet, it's a really great story. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm really excited to do this today because I've Lum can attest I've been really really wanting to get back to this for a while, um, and uh, you know it's it's but basically this is just kind of like how um, that time I got reincarnated as Yamcha came out and how like we we really wanted to do that but we just kind of kept pushing it off, you know, until we got to the point where it's like we might as well just do this as a bonus podcast. I mean, when you've got so many topics that you guys want to cover on your regular shows, it it can be hard to fit absolutely everything you want in. Boy, do we yeah. know it! <laughs> <laughs> um, our schedule is changing all the all the time, but um, yeah, no, I'm like I said, I'm really excited to talk about this. Uh, like I said, we talked about this back in 2017, so um, I apologize if anyone's listened to that episode and we happen to repeat anything we said in that episode because I. I haven't re-listened to that episode in a long time. I will say, though, I think a lot of people have listened to that episode because it is our second highest most listened to video on YouTube. And in terms of my brother's husband videos on YouTube, it's also like the second highest video, I think, in terms of views. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty neat. So, yeah. So a lot of people, I think, have listened to our thoughts on this. At least, uh couple thousand seven thousand or so wow that's that's really weird to think about but it, it's going to be nice to talk about this now that we have like the entirety of the series kind of kind of in our minds here because boy i I, th- I i vividly remember talking on the podcast a couple years back about this first volume and being like man i gotta see how this ends but for those who may not have listened to that episode lum well what is my brother's husband about well, My Brother's Husband is about Yaichi and his daughter Kana. They are visited by Yaichi's brother-in-law's, I mean, Yaichi's brother's husband, Mike. He comes after uh, Ryoichi, um, Yaichi's brother's passing, and he just wants to visit Yaichi and Kana, you know, see where his husband grew up and stuff. Yaichi is kind of dealing with some homophobia and so he's not really welcoming of Mike at first, but as he gets to know him, he really begins to accept him as family. And then the story is just a relationship of this family as they become closer. And Yaichi, as he starts to grapple with both getting over like his homophobia and his preconceptions and biases against gay people, and then also kind of coming to terms with... The shadow of his brother and his regrets towards how his relationship with his brother became distant over time. And that's basically the story of what it's about. Yeah, this was, uh, just reading all this yesterday, um, boy, yeah, I, I cried at least two times, guys. I'm, I'm not even gonna, not even gonna try to front. It's a very sweet story. Oh, it's, it's got a lot of that sort of moment that just, uh, hits you deeply in the tear ducts and just gets it out of you especially near the end um yeah i guess um i guess where do we want to go from here because i i I mean i guess in general i would say that that this comic is probably one of the best i've ever read and i i know that sounds like a lot of praise but like it's just i i don't even know how to like word it it's just it's just such a sweet story and one that's um one that's very comforting, especially in our times, I should say, without getting too deep into it. Yeah, um, no, I'd, I'd be satisfied to say the same. 
I've only managed to read the second half of this series so very recently, like within the last couple of days, but like even from just uh, the first volume, I've been intent that it felt like something of a uh, a, a high point for comics. Like the, the the storytelling itself isn't necessarily the most uh, exciting thing in the world, but that allows it to be that straightforward and readable story to get across these incredibly emotional points. Like it's it is up there in that sort of top echelon of titles to me. Mm-hmm. I think what my brother's husband lacks in like. Uh, I guess, quote-unquote, really exciting storytelling, if you want to call it that. It it makes up for... Because, I mean, it's a very simple story, um, but I think what makes it interesting is is sort of the... Uh, I mean, e- even though it's mostly kind of mundane, like, I do think the paneling and the sequence of panels, the way uh, Tagame sequences his panels, especially when it comes to really like subtle interactions between the characters and uh, i i i especially appreciate how like you know he really takes the time to focus on like how characters re- will react to like a certain things that characters will say mostly yaichi but yeah that's a great recurring motif where yaichi is thinking about like being outspoken early on it's being like rude to mike and he he thinks about what he wants to say, but then we see what he's actually saying, which is like a more polite version of that. And I think that it has a great payoff when those thoughts turn into being in support of Mike and being angry on behalf of like Mike and his daughter and protected of them, like in the conversation with the teacher towards the end of the series. And then we see like him wanting to like yell at this teacher for like the awful comments he's making. But then we see that underneath he's like collected thoughts and like saying what he thought, but like in a more calm way, but still very pointed and direct. I think that was a really great progression. There are some other really brilliant sequences that Tagami employs too. Early on, you know, Yaichi is, like, kind of looking in the mirror as he's, like, debating whether he should, like, go out with clothes on with Mike in the house. And then we have, like, a sequence of panels where we have it framed, like, Yaichi is looking into the mirror and talking. But then we have a panel from, like, the perspective of inside the mirror looking at Yaichi, which is, like, Yaichi is really having conversation with himself from two different perspectives. And you're seeing, like, that back and forth from the two different perspectives, points of view. And I really, really like that touch, too. There's also another scene where, you know, Yaishi is, like, thinking about comments that one of Kana's uh, friends, his mother's, has made. And, like, imagining situation is fine. And he's in the bath and he's, like, scrubbing soap on his hair. And I love how those soap bubbles, they form, like, these panels they form like the borders of these panels that are imagining his thoughts. And then he's like scrubbing as he's scrubbing, like those are like forming inside his mind. And then he's like washing them away as he's washing his hair. That's just another brilliant choice. But of course, like the most consistent, like recurring uh, motif in the book is the idea of Yaichi's shadow and that he's seeing Ryoji in it. And then that shadow is always like following him. And then whenever he's thinking of Ryoji, Ryoji he like looks at his shadow and, like, he is, like, seeing Ryoji in that shadow. Because, like, he is, you know, haunted by the guilt of over, like, how that relationship turned out. How distant he became to his brother. And then slowly is working towards the realization that it wasn't Ryoji that changed and became distant. Like, he has kind of 
made himself believe because Ryoji, you know, moved away. But he realized, no, I was the one who acted differently around him. I was the one who changed how I behaved around him. And so he has to come to terms with that guilt. And then also reconcile, like, learning about a side of his brother, like, he had refused to really open up to when Ryoji was in his life still. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it can get lost a lot in a lot of the other themes, aspects of the story that I think are, are more focal, but how it deals specifically with that sort of grief, where it's the distance that you realise that you've created, it's incredibly powerful. It's probably the thing that hit me most in that, is the, the slow dawning realisation that that distance is both something created by by Aichi and something that can no longer be bridged because it's too late now. And, uh, I mean, w- without divulging anything about my personal life, like uh, that, that stuff really, really hits hard in ways I don't think I really expected going into the book because you think a lot of the other moments, especially the big focus on the, the lack of prejudice in children, which I think is the, the, the core brilliant thing of the book. But like this stuff with um with the the distance and the grief and actually coming to terms with things is just stunningly powerful. Oh yeah, for sure. I think it's even more of a core focus of the book than Yaichi like kind of coming to terms with his like homophobia. That and just this idea that you know things will change, and you know there is not really like a set way of like how things should be. And he has to learn to be comfortable with that. Like, he's afraid of being, like, judged or being, like, seen as abnormal. Like, a big conversation early on he has with Natsuki is that he's worrying because, you know, of their family situation. That he's, like, raising Kana on his own. That he's worried of being kind of judged for that and Kana being judged for that. And he doesn't want that. And that almost... And that comes up during the conversation with the teacher later on. Like, he kind of wants to just be integrated in this society without causing any undue attention to himself. And that also kind of comes up with the reasons why, you know, he refu- kind of hesitates to say Mike is his brother's husband early on in the story. Is also that idea of kind of like avoiding discussing like the truth of, of who they are because it's quote unquote not socially acceptable. I think that in itself is kind of massively fascinating, though, because it, it doesn't seem like an extreme statement within the context of the book, and I think it's made clear that it shouldn't be necessarily seen as one, but breaking out of that societal, very private Japanese way of thinking that the book say like, everyone's trapped within, like, is a, is a real big deal as far as statements go on this sort of subject. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And Yaiji is trapped in often a very binary sort of thinking. Like, I think the big, one of the bigger revelations he has early on is that when Kana just asked him, like, who was the wife and husband in Mike and Ryoji's relationship? Mike says, oh, we were both husbands. I mean, you know, we're both married to each other and you call a married man a husband. So we were both each other's husband. And Yaiji is like, oh, of course it's just, as simple as that, and I was being uncomfortable about it because of the baggage I was bringing to it in terms of sexual connotation and not wanting to think about that. And then I think Ryoji, I mean, I think Yaichi from then on just has to 
kind of keep in mind or like check himself when he gets into like assumptions and then realize, oh, no, it's these aren't like uncomfortable topics to talk about. And I should try and learn more about it. I mean, I think that's the whole reason why he kind of closed himself off to Ryoji when he was a kid and didn't try to like learn more about Ryoji and what he was up to and how he was living his life because he just was afraid of learning more because he thought it was an uncomfortable thing that shouldn't be talked about. But then he realized, no, it's important to talk about this and to know more. Yeah, I mean, if you if you don't talk about it, if you hide it away or pretend to ignore it, then you have a risk of becoming someone like... um Karayan. Ex- exactly, yes. Who has internalized everything, decided that it's this very private thing. Going, I, I think Mike does it, uh, says it well in a, a sort of internal thought process, is that Karayan goes out of their way to hide it from everyone because it's this private thing that shouldn't be discussed. And that is... That's a horrifying, sad way to end up seeing something as important as a core part of your identity. Yeah, it's just not a healthy way to live a life. Like, Mike is spending time with this other openly gay person who knew Ryoji, but he's not having a good time in the conversation because Karayan wants to keep things hush-hush. He doesn't really want to be seen in public with Mike, like Mike asks him, hey, if I see you in the neighborhood, could I wave to you? And Kadwin is like, I guess not, you know. And so that's really hurtful to like keep yourself bottled up inside to hide who you are and not be true to yourself. But Yaichi's house becomes a place where Mike is, you know, able to just be himself and be with his family. And so that's why like he has such a good time with them and didn't, in this case, with Karayan. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in that sense, I totally agree with Maxi that, that, that in a way, this book does have a lot to say about uh, the, the, the way that, you know, Japanese people typically live, where it's, it seems like most people in Japan really don't want to, like, call attention to themselves. They don't want to make any big waves. They really don't want to call attention to themselves, and that's just kind of how they live, for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, like, diagnose, like, everyone in Japan, but that does seem to be a recurring idea in Japanese media, but... I realize that sounds a pretty general, yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely a sort of character trait that I think Tagami himself has expressed frustration about when talking about uh, the nature of Japanese society dealing with gay people. So, like, it, it's not to generalize as much as talk about, the, like, what seems to be the author's intent in this case. And they bring up in the story that discrimination against LGBTQ people isn't, like, as loud or talked about. So, you know, Mike is under assumption, oh, some of these things don't happen here. Ryoji's under that, I mean, Yaichi's under that assumption, too. But then he has a conversation with Natsuki. It's like, well, I mean... There, it's not talked about, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. And you yourself held like prejudice against Mike for, you know, his homosexuality when you first met him. So it's just kind of those things where like, you know, people may keep to themselves a little bit, but like that doesn't mean discrimination isn't happening. It also doesn't mean that there aren't like vocal activists that are like pushing to be seen and noticed and are proud of who they are. 
and are just living their lives truthfully as themselves, you know, proud of being themselves in public in Japan. I, I feel like it's because of that kind of thing. It's it's led to this thing, especially here in North America, where people have this weird like conception about Japan where it's like, oh, the, the, the Japanese people aren't political. They never have yeah. any. Yeah, I can't stand that kind of stuff. You saw that tweet going around where it was like this picture of like, I guess there's a fire in the distance and it's US Twitter and then there's the fence and I guess there's this cat looking. It's like Japanese Twitter is like, what is going on there? Ironically, that tweet was like to say, oh, Japanese Twitter isn't being political right now. When in Japan, like at the time of this recording right now, there is a protest, a very vocal, large protest against police brutality in Japan. Yep. Exactly right. Like it, it just goes to show there's this this completely maddening thing where people like to see Japan as this as this sort of perfect monolith where there's no sorts of problems. And it's like just because it's quiet enough that you're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not there. Like when you can have such a quite a huge protest with some amazing banners, by the way. Just <laughs> yeah, <top-notch laughs> stuff. Um, like and it's still not getting noticed by these godforsaken weebs who like to think that it's either some sort of right-wing paradise or apolitical entirely, which, uh, how those two things manage to be compatible in people's heads, uh, let's not think too much about that. Oh, yeah. But um, mm-hmm. it, it it boggles the minds that people can't see that there's, that every society has layers and details. It has what's said out loud, what's kept quiet. It has people who sit on one end of a political spectrum to the other, and then the people in the middle who cannot hold. You know, like, there is... It's as diverse and and varied a society as anything else. I like to to think it's because, unfortunately, Americans are just louder than most. But there is that. I think we're also ignorant of what's happening elsewhere in the world. Like, people in other countries pay attention to American politics. We're not paying attention to what's happening elsewhere in the world unless it's too big to ignore, like a large revolution or protest happening somewhere else, or, you know, something that involves, like, American politicians directly. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, just just to be absolutely fair here, the UK isn't any different. Uh, that There's so much uh, ignorance of the world around them here. Like, if we, if, if we don't still own it, we don't know about it. Uh, and that's, you know... That in itself is a problem. It's that it, I, I don't want to be like, haha, the silly Americans. England <laughs> is also shit. But that that's all travels a little bit further away from uh, my brother's husband. Have you guys looked at the credits for these uh, these volumes? Um, I haven't, unfortunately. No. Okay, so I couldn't tell you for the life of me who lettered these books. We've got uh, we got Anne Ishii as the translator, and I, I I absolutely adore the work done here because there's so much multilingual writing that's having to be handled purely in English. Like, it, that's why you, we, we've, I think we said previously about all the things like the husband and that, as we are talking about husband, or how, like, it's a, uh, gaijin, no, you mean foreigner, when probably in the original Japanese, I've never gone back and double-checked, that's probably, are uh, not gaijin, gaikokujin, because, again, it's all about acceptability there. And I, I think that continues across volume two, an absolutely amazing job translating it to actually function in a singular language like that. Yeah, I'm going to be very excited to talk with on later about the translation and some of the thought process into it, especially in terms of translating the 
you know, language barrier between Mike and the rest of the family and how he will often like repeat words that he doesn't know and then which words they decide to, you know, keep as Japanese terminology, which words to translate, which words to kind of anglicize. It'll be very, very interesting, I think, to learn more about that. It's a sort of process that I find, uh, I, I find it exciting in the same way as when people have broken down like a, like recent threads going on about translation choices in the house in Fata Morgana, a visual novel, where you see like the, 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 the intricate choices made to go and make something function as a solid adaptation by changing things to accurately convey feelings or ideas. And, and this is that level of work. I, I absolutely love this. Um, and Chip, Chip Kid did the cover designs again. Uh, Chip Kid has, has a lot of things that are styles that you can tell, that, uh, especially between this and the passion of Gengoro Tagame or his Daniel Klaus book and that. It's, hey, big red banner, here's the name of the thing, move along. And like that, I feel like, does a disservice to how well these covers pop, especially with other things like, uh, what was it called, uh, Batmanga, The Secret History of Batman in Japan. Hate the book, wonderful cover design. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it, it, People are too precious with their comics. Don't just take photos <laughs> and make a book. Like, destroy your comics to properly preserve them as digital files. Why not? Um, but uh, absolutely adore the cover design there. And then there's just... The only other credit is Production Assistance by John Kuramoto. And it's like, could could that be someone who did some lettering? It 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 shouldn't bother me that much. But I, I have... It's, it's that vagueness that makes it really hard to know who to praise. Because I like the lettering on this book. And I'd love to properly attribute it to who does it. Because it's like, it's it's not like blow you out the water stuff. It doesn't do a lot of sound effects or anything. But it massively fits the tone of the work you're reading. And that's kind of rad. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are really beautifully made books. I mean, this was definitely marketed as a prestige release. And I think that it really succeeded in making waves and then raising visibility on LGBTQ manga and, you know, making awareness of them and helping kind of spur a trend of, you know, getting more great LGBTQ comics over here. Manga, at the very least. I'm really hoping that we get uh, Tagame's uh, other work, Our Colorful Days, which uh, I, I remember seeing around, I remember uh when that was uh, when it was announced that was starting up and i think it just ended recently um i don't i don't think anyone's picked it up yet i, I hope it does because it seems like from from the little i know of it, it it seems pretty interesting absolutely yeah i'm very interested to reading that as well you know especially because you know my brother's husband is a great story but it's definitely written for general audiences kind of straight audiences to kind of understand gay people in a way that's kind of non-threatening but like i the parts of the book that also really resonate to me are like the parts from mike's perspective where we're getting into that authentic place and like stuff that really feels true to life in terms of conversations and feelings Mm -hmm. and so our color for days is like about like a queer gay protagonist and it's about his struggle and i kind of want to see tagami write like this kind of slice of life story from that perspective because i just really feel like reading more comics from that perspective nowadays personally but like yeah it's just that i really like brother's husband though it just takes a little while for mike to get inside his head because for 
a lot of the story, you know, we are seeing from Yagi's perspective, but Mike is also being presented kind of like very, you know, genial and polite. Like he doesn't get very mad or upset. So it's very easy to, you know, like him, but also it's he feels a little distant in terms of getting to know him. And then as the story continues, we do get to know him again. We have him going out on his own more. We see him having conversations with Katayan and Kazuya. And we have like real authentic conversations between two gay people talking about their issues. And that really resonated with me. Again, the stuff with Kazuya is very emotional and how he looked up to Mike as like an, you know, older figure like he can vent to because he just can't do that with his own family and he's afraid to which is so meaningful and powerful i i remember that being like my favorite part of the first volume when that first came out well and so uh, the, the revisit with kazir in the in the second volume's great as well like oh yeah it's so beautiful because you know mike sees him and he holds his hand like he wants to call out to him but then he thinks oh would kazir like that but then kazir sees him and he's the one who waves out to him and goes over to him and that's so great because this comes right after the encounter with kadian and kadian saying oh don't call out to me in public but kazir is not afraid to and that is just so nice to see community being formed and shared there well, again, and it, it feeds into into my favorite theme in the book of uh, of kids being the the way forward to progression. Because I mean, Kazuya isn't necessarily a kid; he's a he's a little older than the rest of the young cast. But you see that his attitude for, towards things are still, on the whole, much brighter and more positive, and willing to put himself out there, even if it is still with little white lies and stuff to do so. Yeah, I think I I, I made a tweet. Uh, posting one particular page of Kana hugging Mike with Yaichi in the background, uh, literally saying, kids are lucky, they don't have to think about that stuff. And I was like, that's literally just, I I think that really sums up my brother's husband quite well. (laughs) Well, I feel like that's kind of Yaichi's misconception, that kids don't have to think about that kind of stuff. I mean, a part of the book is that it's really all comes down it comes down to environment and what you are teaching kids yeah. and how you are raising them and like actually having conversations with them and letting them know that, hey, treat people the right way. You know, these things are okay. Like Kana asked questions of Yaichi several times in the story where he kind of tries to sidestep the question to you before finally, you know, being open and honest with her. And we see that there are other like parental figures who are telling their kids, oh, stay away from Kana and Mike, you know, there'll be bad influences. And that can be hurtful. Like, I mean, the fact that Kazuya can't feel like he can open up to his family, you know, that is hurtful. Like kids keep things to themselves and kids can learn the wrong messages and run with them. So like the optimism is really about teaching the next generation to be better rather than the next generation inherently, you know, being innocent and or immediately progressive. Well, I, I don't think it's their innocence necessarily. And I, I don't think it's just about being taught it because quite crucially, it, it's about how you're, you don't grow with a uh, ingrained sense of prejudice. It comes from other people. That is true. Because Kana's other friend is quite astute and like wise beyond her years talking about the subject when her mum's actually quite homophobic, uh, at least as the story seems to demonstrate. So, like, I think it shows it. it's not necessarily about teaching them, because if Yaichi had just taught them, then what would that have done for him? He 
he had to learn from Kana to challenge his own prejudice. Yeah. The, mm. the kids are all right. It's the adults that are the problem. <laughs> I also, though, feel that is a little bit skewed and optimistic that kids don't have any prejudice or they don't form any prejudices on their own because i mean they can learn things from all sorts of places but they also can come up with their own prejudices by themselves just realistically it feels when you think about how people create in-group out groups like from a very early age i mean from a very young age what kids will learn to distinguish between you know who their parents are and who other people who are not out of their in their family are like these things start from a very young age i mean it's important to monitor like what kids are learning and then what behaviors or prejudices they might be forming and then guide them into the right direction in terms of treating people right i mean that's guiding them but i mean you said you said the things they're learning they they don't innately develop it it's what they learn from uh environment or people around them Mm -hmm. but i'm it's also important then to just keep in mind the environment. Because, like, in Brother's Husband, you know, Kana is likely to be in a really good environment where she has, like, Yaichi has, you know, his internalized homophobia. But, like, he is, like, considerate and caring and isn't, like, out. And he does, like, relent and take Mike in and try to learn him. And then also try and make sure that Kana is raised up to be a good person. And Natsuki is also a good influence on her. And then Yuki, like Hana's friend who kind of goes against like her mother and has her own idea of things. Like, yeah, she has kind of not learned from her parents in terms of that homophobia. But like that idea that, you know, all love should be respected. Love is love. That is learned from somewhere. That is like an idea that she has picked up and run with and, you know, come to believe wholeheartedly. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes it clear it's from Romeo and Juliet where, like, she reached a conclusion. But that's still the the open mindedness that comes with a lack of prejudice, because obviously, if you if you already had it ingrained in you to believe that I don't know that uh, cross familial love in a gang war would be bad, you'd read Romeo and Juliet and go, "Ah, oh, this is bullshit," and you'd throw it <laughs> to the side. Like, you get what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it clearly, if she, I mean, if Kana has you know, uh, picked up her behavior from anybody is it was probably her mom. Well, we do see later in the story, you know, kind of this kind of hide her sadness about Mike leaving from Mike and Yaichi in public. And Yaichi thinks that, oh, he probably learned that way of kind of avoiding being like public with her feelings from me. That's true. Yeah. And, you know, so like Yaichi's behavior how Yaiji acts does have an effect on Kana. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, there's there's hints all the way back in the first volume about how Yaiji's uh, know, behavior in the past may not have always been great considering his and his wife's divorce. Like, they don't really sugarcoat that massively. And you you see how Kana responds to that. When Kana, like, when Yaiji and Atsuki are getting into a little bit of an argument, Kana, like gets upset and says to Yaichi, don't bully mom. Like, she remembers. She remembers the fights they used to have. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we, just due to the nature of the story in the book, we, we don't really know, like, I mean, for, for, for all we know, they could have been, they could have been just verbal arguments. We don't know if 
we can't know for sure if anything got physical, but just having that having that possibility out there does make me feel a little uneasy. I mean, verbal arguments can be just as bad. Oh, <laughs> uh, they don't really mention that. Pos- they don't really mention that, but verbal, yeah, I think they they, they don't mention that. But I, I do remember that. I do remember Maxi bringing up that possibility. I think in that last time we talked about this. Yeah, well, I mean, there were a lot of possibilities, but I think we even speculated on the possibility that they might be heading towards a sort of point where they'd be setting up Yaichi and Mike as a couple, and I'm quite I'm quite glad that didn't come together. Yeah, I do remember wondering if Yaichi had internalized homophobia, like he was afraid to kind of admit his own queerness, and that might have affected his relationship with Nazi. Ultimately, that isn't the direction the story went, but I think kind of Yaichi's internal conflict was explored and developed in a really great way. And I mean, and they do kind of address this with Mike when he meets with Kalyan, being like, oh, doesn't it mess with you? He looks just like your old husband." And uh, like, I'm glad it got, I guess, acknowledged enough and also dismissed appropriately. Yeah, I mean, Mike does see Ryoji and Yaichi a little bit, but they are two separate people, and Mike is very aware of that. Yeah. And that's just not the direction this story was heading. I mean, I wouldn't put it past maybe Tagami was kind of playing with the readers a little bit there, you know, teasing them about, oh, maybe it'll go into this direction. Oh, absolutely. A bit of intrigue. But I'm still glad it turned out the way it did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's just a story about a family kind of grieving together, but also becoming closer. And that's really beautiful. And like, it ends on a note of, you know, we don't know if we'll ever meet again, but we will always be family, no matter what happens, how things change in the future. I feel like I half expected it was going to do like a little time skip forward to give you an idea of how things went in the future, but on reflection, I'm kind of glad it didn't, because I feel like this uh, this fits things better, because it, it doesn't necessarily matter if you know, it's about what's been learned along the way. Yeah, it's about the moment, and that's kind of the final pages too, is like, you know, I don't know what will happen in the future, but I appreciate this moment this time that I'm spending with you, my daughter. And I will just treasure that. Exactly. I, I think it's a great, a, a, a real proper, like, uh, what, did, what, what did you call the opposite of a crash? Like, a good landing? They they landed the ending, is my point. I, yeah. I got weirdly caught up on a concept that doesn't have a name. <laughs> but they absolutely nailed it, is my point. Oh, absolutely. Like, it, it's very easy for manga, especially short manga, to kind of flub the ending. Yeah. And I think My Brother's Husband's easily in, like, top five good endings for manga for me at the moment. Oh, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, it comes to its conclusion really beautifully. And again, it has a strong thematic core from beginning to end, strong character progression beginning to end. Um, so, so, Something I, uh, I really um, enjoyed about this was uh, I, I, I really like the care that Tagame takes when it comes to... Um, when it comes to showing Yaichi actually like express his emotions because we, the, he, he really goes out of his way to, to show Yaichi crying, but not really like uh, I, I, I posted a, uh, that moment on Twitter where uh, I, I forget which chapter it's, it's early on where uh, he's kind of looking up at the sky at the moon 
and he realizes how much he misses his brother. And the last shot is is kind of a uh, out of focus shot of the moon. And I didn't. I I think when I first read this, I I own the series physically now. But back back when we reviewed it on the podcast, I I owned it digitally. So I think that detail might have passed me up the first time I read this. But on my second read, I realized like, oh, okay, it's out of focus, which means this is from the point of view of of Yaichi, which means he's actually crying, and that, that I was, I was just kind of blown away by, like, that, like, that detail, like, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily show it, but Takame kind of has you, like, fill that in on your own, and, and, he, and even when we get kind of close to the end, when they're, uh, you know, when they're visiting, uh, when Yaichi's visiting his parents' grave, uh, you know, you can tell he gets pretty emotional, but part part of the grave kind of like blocks your view of his face, so you don't know whether he's crying or not. But I think he is personally. Well, I think it's nice because it leads you to draw your own conclusion about how he's expressing the feelings that you that you know are there in that moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it even kind of leads up to the very end where, like, you know, he supposedly, I I, I would imagine, break down in front of his daughter. Break down front of Kana. Yeah, when they're when they're walking down the street and they're holding hands, oh, and, yeah, and he you does see, start crying, yeah, yeah, and you see Yaichi kind of like wipe his face, and Kana's kind of asking like, "What what's wrong with that? What's what's wrong with you or whatever?" I don't know. I I just I I, I like the way Tagame kind of uh kind of handles that aspect of his character in particular. Yeah, Yaichi is not like a very openly emotional person, which is why we often hear him think about loudly yelling what he thinks. When in reality, he just kind of meekly says it or says contrary to what he's thinking. But yeah, I like these moments that do show him kind of subtly, you know, expressing, you know, sadness or kind of a cathartic cry that he kind of hides away. And it's very subtle, but it kind of is very fitting for him to be emotional in that kind of more subdued way. I do enjoy how how subtle it is because, I mean, it still it still would have gotten me either way. But like in in retrospect, I'm kind of glad it was subtle and we we didn't get like a huge moment where Yaichi just is just crying like really bubbly tears or whatever. Because I think mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, again, it's it's a thing that would have gotten me in the moment, but it would have also been a thing in retrospect where a bit where it would have been like, oh, that's kind of too much. Yeah, and, and it's not that Tagame lacks the range to have these moments. Uh, that in their other work, you get uh, all sorts of varieties of expressions. But I, I think this is something that uh, has a bit more of a deft hand to it, and it definitely pays off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the huge emotional moment regarding Yaichi embracing Micah's family is when he's the one at the end who offers to give Mike a hug goodbye. Which is such, you know, a dramatic change from the very beginning of the story and how they first met is like Mike just suddenly hugged Yaiji and he was very uncomfortable and angry about that. And then he's thinking or saying that, oh, Japanese people, you know, we don't really hug like that. But here, you know, Mike, I mean, Yaiji is the one who, you know, offers to hug goodbye. And it's just so beautiful to see him like truly embrace Mike as family. Oh, you know, I I gotta be honest that that's not even the moment that got me the most. Um, I think it's when they're they're looking at photos of Ryoji on on Mike's uh, iPad and whatever, and uh, 
you know, Mike kind of flashes back to a conversation he has with Ryoji where, you know, he, uh, where Ryoji promises Mike that they'll go visit Japan together and meet his family. And, you know, we find out that, you know, the reason Mike is visiting Yaichi is because he wanted, he wanted to keep that promise to Ryoji that, uh, that he, that he would be family with his brother. And, uh, you know, obviously Yaichi is like, oh, well, Mike, you've been family all this time. And, that I I, I I sobbed for like a good five minutes after that because I was like, oh man, that that really that really just kind of hit me out of nowhere. It was it was yeah. it was very strange, honestly, because it just like just like the flip of a switch. Hey, you know what kind of distracts you from that moment in a really frustrating way if you're reading it on Kindle? <laughs> oh. oh yeah, you know how there's the lovely two page spread of uh, Mike and Ryoji's wedding. Oh dear, yeah. hey, split it. The, the first volume of the Kindle goes right to left and everything goes together nicely. The second one, as well as having a weird blurriness problem, goes from left to right. And so that two-page spread is split over two pages. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. And in the wrong order entirely, which is uh, a tragic pain because it's such a powerful moment and there's so much going on there. And that took me right out of it. Yeah, those kind of formatting problems with two-page spreads are always so frustrating to see. I mean, you'd think that he would try and proofread to make sure that problem yeah. won't happen. But, I mean, I think that moment between Mike and Yaichi kind of speaks to another just important theme of the book, which is just acceptance, the importance of accepting people for themselves and how meaningful that is. Like, just the feeling of knowing that you have a place of belonging, that people accept you for being you and you don't have to hide yourself and you don't have to, like, worry that you can't be yourselves in front of them. Like, that's a struggle we not only see with Mike's throughout this series, but, you know, it's touched upon with Kazuya and with the interaction with Kato, too. I think that I think that was the thing that got me about it was just... Uh... Because we we very rarely get any kind of flashbacks with uh, with Ryoji in particular, so we we obviously don't really get to see his point of view on a lot of these things. And it was, I think, it was in that moment where you know he talks about how he he wanted his brother to to accept him, and how and he he acknowledges that yeah we grew distant, and I think I think that's just kind of like. That, that that just kind of like triggered something in me like oh of course like of course he feels this way and it's just something i wasn't really i wasn't really thinking about but upon that realization i think that's just it's just something that made me very sad to think about mm-hmm. oh yeah no fully which um just a little aside here um i was kind of mentioning it off mic but uh I, I really wish I had the chance to watch the My Brother's Husband uh, drama that came out back in 2018. Apparently, I'm not I'm not going to say much, but it's it's out there if you want to watch it. That's all I'll say. But yeah, I was kind of like skimming through it a little bit. Uh, it's only three episodes apparently, uh, which is interesting. And uh, I, I think each episode is like an hour long or something. But uh, I was kind of skimming. I was skimming through the third episode. Because I was kind of interested in like how they handled that moment in particular, and uh, I I didn't get a chance to see what uh, to kind of watch closer to see like whether this was like a like a mistranslation or if this was something they actually added to the story. But Ryoji like mentions that he has like cancer in the drama. 
That's interesting because in the manga, they never say why Ryoji died or what Ryoji died from. Yeah. Which I thought was mm. a very interesting choice since the story isn't really about how Ryoji died, but like his family, like coming to terms with Ryoji's death and then becoming closer together in the wake of it. But yeah, it is an interesting detail. Yeah, so I, I I wonder if that's just something they added to like maybe make the time frames of things make sense because like cl- clearly like I said Ryoji and Mike wanted to go visit Japan together, um, and I mean I guess we don't really have too much of an idea of like how much time has passed since that moment and when Mike actually visits Japan, but I mean I, I don't know I just thought. I don't know, it was, I thought that was an interesting addition, if true, I guess. I wonder if a lot of that comes down to the nature of uh, televised drama versus comics and what people expect from them. Because amb- I think, like, deliberate ambiguity, I think, lends itself very well to comic storytelling. But a lot of dramas, uh, especially from my experience with Japanese dramas, I think uh, really like everything to, to be direct to be the point. It has to fill the, the holes. Even if it is a short adaptation, I suppose. Yeah, that is really interesting. But uh, uh, I, I mean, outside of that, from from the very little I kind of watched and skimmed through of the drama, it's it seems like a pretty like adequate adaptation of the source material at the very least. And yeah, I'm I'm definitely going to be watching that at some point. Definitely, I would love to check it out as well. Personally, I really appreciate Tagami's art and character designs just in general oh yeah i do really enjoy that although he is writing this for a general uh mostly straight audience in terms of the story like he sprinkles in there you know some a bit of man service (laughs) i very much appreciate how beefy both yaichi and mike are oh yeah the attention to detail of mike's hairiness though i do find it strange that his hair stops a bit up his forearm and isn't on his back. I don't know why his back isn't also hairy, if, like, the front of his body is. And I also appreciate the many, many bat scenes he managed to sprinkle in just to show off uh, Mike and Yaichi naked. There's a particular, like, two-page... Uh, scene of Mike Vading like in the chapter where they introduce Natsuki that really doesn't need to be there. It doesn't like progress the story or anything. It's just Mike Vading. And I just really, really appreciate that. And, uh... I suppose when you're uh, <laughs> when you're that legendary of a creator of beef cake art, you have to put a little bit in there. I know, right? Oh, man. Like just a, just that, a little uh, bit of art for daddy. He stays true to himself in that way. Mm. I did weirdly appreciate that as well. It was literally just like kind of in and out, just like here, here, guys. Here's a here's a page for you. I know, I know, I know what you're here for. I mean, his attention to detail with male anatomy is quite impressive. Like, there's a scene where Yaichi's in the bat, and like we see him even detail Yaichi's uh, crotch hair and the outline <laughs> of his genitals in the bat. Yeah, like I, that, that. That's something else I think I noticed, like reading in print too. I was kind of, I was kind of looking just, just because I was curious. Like, oh wow, like he really, he really puts a lot of detail on the uh, anatomy there. Yeah, I just cause, oh. Because yeah. the readers want to know. They want to know about it. I also like how they eventually justify why Yaichi is so built. Is that, oh, I go to the gym, you know. Because, uh-huh. <laughs> like, Yaichi, uh, it's like 
a landlord, which, you know, not the most uh, profession that I admire the most. Not one no, of that. No, not but, at all. You know, uh, whatever. He's a good dad, <laughs> that's, that's I guess. That's the challenge, isn't it? Because all, all landlords are worthless, but this landlord has our heart. So what can we do? Uh, yeah, I mean, that conversation with Mike where he's like, oh, but Yaichi, you do work hard. You're a good father. And it's like, yeah, but he also makes his money by, <laughs> by renting out property that he just inherited. Yeah, it's like you sort of tug at your tug at your collar and be like, if you can call it work. <laughs> yeah, like, 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 to be fair, I, I, I think Yaichi is at least aware of that. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, he's not like a dick to his tenants at the very least. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I I appreciate that, like, they, they that Tagami wrote in an excuse for why Yaichi would be built despite living a fairly sedentary lifestyle it seems and hey it, it meant we got to go and like have a bit of knowledge about the sort of things like uh and learn about other types of you know prejudice and discrimination which is another yeah. like team that the book looks against and the different ways people like discriminate or form prejudice against people just for you know appearances or the way they are that is different from what the status quo is supposed to be. Exactly. It's kind of, it's we it's weaved in. We, it's not just a random out of place thing. No, no, like, there, I mean, every chapter in this is thoughtful and, like, progresses the story and the overall themes of the book in a very purposeful way. Yeah, I found it interesting how they, uh, how they brought up the whole tattoo thing about how in Japan, if you have a tattoo, you're, because... Uh, people in japan who have tattoos are considered to be part of the yakuza uh which from from what i've heard from other people is a very true thing in japan mm-hmm. but then i like that yaichi is interrogated further by kana is like why is it bad to be Yai- yakuza are they bad people are old people with tattoos bad people and yaichi becomes like increasingly like unable to kind of give kana more of a clear answer to that it's just like something he kind of like accepted as something but really never thought about further that's also kind of true in another small scene like when they do visit the graves and it's like yaichi tells kind of hey don't blow out the incense candle kind of like why and yaichi's like i don't know i was just that's just not what you're supposed to do you don't blow it out i like how that's sprinkled in at several points during the story just to re-emphasize the idea of like why is the status quo or this general knowledge of how things should be the way it is? Kind of like, asks a lot of questions. Like, why can't it be different? Why can't people live a different way? And then, I mean, that, that most crucial questions, is it really so bad to be a Yakuza when the alternative's being a landlord, you know? Like, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> often they are the same thing, to be fair, but still. <laughs> <laughs> are they i don't know i have nothing to do with organized crime and anyone who's told you otherwise is a i'm sure some people feel that way yes yeah. <laughs> but no yeah man i mean look if you haven't read my brother's husband you should do it like because I, I i seriously like after after i finished this up yesterday i i was really i was really wondering how how i felt about it and whether like whether it would be, uh, it would be too, uh, ex- uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, exaggerated or whatnot to say that this is probably one of my favorite comics now. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. 
I think it, it's incredibly fair statement. Like I, I said, I, I said this like one of the best comics I've ever read, and I'd, I'd stick by that. Like it's, it's incredibly good. You can see why Pantheon, who tends to be at least comics wise, a little bit more hoity-toity than the normal publishers that touch manga. Like you can see why they went for this. This is the sort of thing that I think, in the right sort of publishing environment where it's kept current, could be remembered in the same way as some other works they publish, such as Mouse, which seems like the most ridiculously huge statement. Let's scale it down a little. Mysterious polyp. <laughs> it'll, it'll be remembered as well as that, you know. that That's still ridiculously huge, but I feel like comparing anything to Mouse is a oh, bit much. Um, Even maybe. But it, but it has that potential. This is this is evergreen. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, so. I think in terms of, like, a series you would consider like a prestige comic maybe in the vein of mouse in terms of how it reflects the political and social issues of its day and is valuable as a story to revisit because of that i think that brother's husband is up there you know especially considering the background and the time in which it was released i don't know if there's many other manga let alone out in english that i would perceive in the same sort of way maybe 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 our dreams at dusk yeah that's what i was thinking and i feel like if you want like a story that explores multiple different angles of the lgbtq experience i feel that is like a series you will really resonate and is incredibly valuable in that respect and honestly, I would put that up there as Brother's Husband. You know, Brother's Husband, like, again, is aimed for, like, a general audience that includes, like, you know, straight readership. And, you know, it's a little toned down for that straight readership. Like, we never see an actual kiss between two men or two, you know, same-sex people in this book. Uh, but, like, Our Dreams of Dusk, you know, it goes even deeper. It goes even rawer with, like, difficult feelings and emotions. So I think that also is really important for readers who need to read that kind of story too. Mm-hmm. Just putting it out there, I um, I can't wait to read that here later this week. But anyway, uh, not to date this podcast, but um, yeah. So I, I guess in terms of how I would stack up my brother's husband against other comics and manga, uh, I definitely agree that I think uh, I, I tweeted about this also that like my brother's husband, I think is a very important series uh, that I think. You know, like like Maxie said, it's evergreen. Like I think it's always, uh, whether fortunately or unfortunately, it's I think it's always going to be relevant as long as there is discrimination and prejudice, which probably isn't going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I think in terms of just stories of of learning to accept other people for who they are, I would I would put this up there with stuff like a silent voice, like stuff that. I think stuff that should be available to a wider audience. Like I, I, I think, I think when I first got into a silent voice, I, you know, I used to agree with the sentiment or, I mean, I still do. Uh, but uh, I, I was going to say, I, I agree with the sentiment that a silent voice is the kind of manga that I think should be like available in libraries. And I think I feel the same way about my brother's husband. Yeah. It has valuable lessons to teach and to learn from. God, I really need to get through more of A Silent Voice. I've read one volume of it in English and naturally watched the film. The, the film did so much, so much damage to me, I've not been able to actually go read the comic. Because <laughs> I was like, God, this is that traumatic. This is that, but more. I, I was going to say, Maxi, if you if you get through A Silent Voice, you're more than welcome to join us when we record about that in a couple months. 
Oh god, don't don't tempt me. I'm sure I'll just be sobbing the whole time. <laughs> I can I can just imagine the podcast now. Hey Maxie, what did you think of this? <laughs> just like that for like forty minutes. Don't. I mean, I I, thought, um, I finally have all of descending stories because of a, oh, nice. a charity bundle recently. Oh yeah, and like that's another one I'm dreading reading because of the emotional hit I'm going to take getting through it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Comics are dangerous. <laughs> don't, don't do one even once. Not even one. Uh, comics are emotionally damaging and you shouldn't touch them. They'll hurt your feelings. Except for hentai. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. No, don't don't actually agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, we gotta get to descending stories, too. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, just to get back to the topic, yeah, My Brother's Husband, I just, we, we really can't recommend it enough and is... Um, I, I knew it was going to be a story that, you know, when I read the second half of it was going to hit me in some way. And I was, I was very much right. And I, I'm so, I'm so glad that after, God, I can't believe it's been three years that I've been able to finally got get around to like finishing this because man, that the, the wait for that second volume was, was hell. Honestly, I can't believe we had to wait that long. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, I guess, like, to be fair, like, thinking about because I think my brother's husband in Japan had, like, just ended when the first volume came out. So I'm sure, like, uh, there was still a lot of work to be done getting the second half of that series over here. But, man. Yeah, like, because mm. in Japan, it was published as three volumes, I want to say. And the third volume had Four not volumes. actually come out. Four volumes. Yeah, the, the back half of the series hadn't actually come out at that point. Yeah, see, that's that's also the yeah. thing, too. Yeah. The fourth volume was released after the first U.S. edition. Mm. Which, again, I think was a great sign of confidence from Pantheon in the actual work. Oh, yeah. Um, but, I mean, the, the, mo- the most important thing is, is that it's out. And, again, you can it's, it's been out for so long that you could buy both volumes in an omnibus edition of its own. Which, uh, which is what I bought. And uh, I, I'm trying to think. I think I bought it for about... Twenty dollars. I'd I'd have to recheck the uh, MSRP. That's a good deal. Yeah, I mean for for about like I want to say it's at least like five hundred pages worth of comics. I I I think that's I think that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm kind of pausing here. Why double check that real quick? Well, I think it'd be seven hundred, right? Because both volumes are three fifty pages. Uh, yeah, sense. yeah, like, I, I guess that's I, true. I thought we were just pausing to bask in the glow of how good the comic was. I was like, yeah. <laughs> that's important, too. <laughs> uh, but uh, I guess, is there is there anything else we want to say before I think we wrap up here soon? Or I think this is a story we'd highly recommend. And in terms of LGBTQ manga, it's one of the best. And I think that... You know, you will get a lot out of the story because of its really personal exploration of family and acceptance, dealing with grief, but also just appreciating the company, the people around you in the moment. If you like good comics, and God knows we do, read My Brother's Husband. Don't be a schmuck. <laughs> that that should be on the cover of the book. That's a that's that's a good poll line. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. It, it uh, this this collected edition just came out like in in February twenty twenty. So yeah, this this is a pretty recent release actually. Oh, wow. 
That makes us look current. Well, hey. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, MSRP is uh, about $29 and you can get it for $10 off online. So yeah, I mean, oh. if, if you, you have the spare change, go go buy this. It's really good. We'll definitely leave links in the show notes for anybody who wants to who wants to go buy this. But uh, yeah, I think uh, and I know we I, I, I something else I wanted to say is uh, I, I know we probably like we, we, we talked a whole lot about like the story and where it goes, but this is uh, th- this is the kind of thing where like e- even if we talk about all the places the story the, the story goes and like how it ends like it's still it's still worth experiencing for yourself. Uh, so if if you're if 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 you're listening and you're not too bothered by spoilers or if you think we've spoiled in any way the series for you at all, like you should still read it. It's still very much worth it. I, I think no amount of spoiling can ruin the impact of the moments themselves. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, but I I think that's gonna about do it for this podcast. Uh, and uh, yeah, Maxi, we really want to thank you for coming on and uh, podcasting with us again. Uh, I'm always eager to talk about literally any comic under the sun. It's uh, a great distraction from the times we're in, and it means I have an excuse to actually finish reading things which is a skill i somewhat lack nowadays <laughs> honestly honestly if it, if it weren't for this podcast i wouldn't finish nearly as nearly as many titles in a, in a year i don't think uh indeed but uh yeah um i guess maxi uh i uh i i feel like every time we have you on it, it's it's a uh, what's the word i'm looking for uh it, it's a bit of a crapshoot in terms of like whether you're doing things or not <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, uh, I actually I I've ne- I have never I have never been diagnosed with ADHD. <laughs> but sometimes I do wonder. Same here for myself. Uh, but uh, actually, I just remembered uh, you did post a few reviews on your uh, on your website. If you want to talk about those real quick, yes, absolutely, I would love to. Uh, so over at my website, friendshipeffortvictory.com, an amazing URL that I don't actually have to pay as much for as you'd think. Uh, I have started doing what will hopefully be a continuing monthly series of reviews. It's just, if I've got through something on my unreads and I have something to say about it, I do a little review. Uh, so I've done one for the month of May now, which features four series. Uh, Sleepy Princess in a Demon Castle Volume 11, High Score Girl Volume 1 from the relatively new Square Enix publishing uh, initiative thing they're doing. Uh, Hime Kokan, The Princess of Otaku Circles, Wants to Exchange Boyfriends, Volume 4. God, I don't even know if I've translated that title properly. <laughs> uh, which is the only Japanese book on an, on the set of four that I've reviewed. And also intensely horny. Uh, and, quite crucially, Shed That Skin, Ryugasaki-san by uh, Kazutomo Ichitomo from the brand new publisher, Kaiten Books. That really is the reason I would like people to visit my website and read my reviews. Because Shed That Skin, Ryugasaki-san is hands down the surprise hit of the year for me and i really want to sell you on Ooh, it wow so frenchperfectvictory.com head over there read my reviews i credit everyone it takes five seconds to write down crediting people's easy damn straight Do it. I, i'm gonna keep hammering this point especially now that i've started writing reviews again <laughs> because it's so straightforward and it allows you to structure your reviews around that sometimes i i love talking about the translators and the letterers who work on books and so proper crediting is kind of crucial for that. Uh, I also have my Twitter at Maxi the Bee, where I no no at the moment I'm mostly just really angry about things, but now and then 
there, there are other things on about it. Sometimes I talk about what's going on in Grand Jump lately because it's my bag. But I'm I'm only halfway through an issue that came out like three weeks ago, so I'm falling behind. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, most people are on Twitter are angry about things most of the time, it seems. Indeed. But at least it's righteously right now. <laughs> That's something. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I hope you guys enjoyed revisiting or listening for the first time to our discussions of Arbiter's Husband with Maxie. They were really, really good discussions. I remember really loving the series and loving having our thoughts on them. And yeah, I think that it is a good kind of revisit to have before going into a discussion of Tagame's newest work. You know, five years out from when My Brother's Husband one was published in North America, we're getting his second, you know, know mainstream only just work in our colors and that is a title that kind of addresses some of the things that i was feeling was a little lacking in mbh and like really kind of really really enthralled me and so i'm really looking forward to you guys listening to our discussion went on about that next week and yeah i just hope you enjoy having a double dose of some discussion of some really great manga by the massive author here and you know speaking of massive i I want to get us into our community shoutouts and start off by recommending Manga Explaining's recent episode covering Massive. Which, if you do not remember uh, from our discussion uh, with An Ishii that I, I did two years ago, like Massive is like a collection that was published uh, in the mid 2010s of like a bunch of gay erotic manga from a lot of authors, including Tagame, and it shows a lot of variety in like different styles and different approaches to gay manga erotic content. And I thought the manga playing team did a really great job of kind of looking at those stories. And and kind of picking out like what they found interesting stylistically about them and content wise about them and what they would look forward to seeing what they found wanting that I would have liked to see in a second edition of the book. So I really enjoyed listening to their discussion of that and definitely if you have an interest in gay erotic manga and definitely stuff with some big beefy hurly dudes and stuff that really explores a lot of uh, really hardcore fetish stuff too but also a lot of sweet stories as well in that collection. Definitely check out that book and check out Mongus Plains episode on it. Now, speaking of things that are kind of uh, massive in a whole other way, I want to recommend the One Piece podcast, like Arcs of Consequence, the latest edition of that. They went through uh, in anticipation of the series, you know, 25th anniversary and also the return of the manga, ranking all of the arcs of One Piece. Again, it's the first time they did it in seven-ish years, I believe was the last time. Yeah, I think it was before Whole Cake. I remember. Because I remember they did it after their last read-through where they got through Dress Rosa. So yeah, it's, it's been a very long time. And it was nine hours of discussion across three episodes. <laughs> so yeah. And... No, I don't always agree with how some rankings went. You know, I'm, I think I'm always going to be more of a Sierra Village fan than it seems <laughs> a lot of people are. Uh, but, you know, I overall found just the conversations people had about the art very fun. You know, in general, like, I think that it was a really, really entertaining listen over these past couple weeks. So, yeah, if you also want to take a trip down memory lane of One Piece as you're anticipating getting into the final arc or... You know, just to reminisce about the series, you know, in celebration sort of an anniversary, I think this was a really great project to do that. 
Speaking of reminiscing and going back to the subject of kind of queer manga, I really wanted to share this piece by Meru, a guest piece they wrote over on Akazu, where they explored how Yuri helped them kind of discover and reconcile their feelings about their gender identity and ultimately feel encouraged to recognize like how they were feeling and come out as a trans mass non-binary person and really going you know very intimately into talking about like specific series and titles that were super forward of him particularly Kashimashi and like kind of the yearning for being able to transition uh, in the same way as the character in that series and exist outside you know a binary and yeah just kind of their navigation of that and how Yuri titles really helped them kind of see themselves, see kind of the version of themselves that they wanted to be in them. And I thought it was a really sweet reflection and personal essay and I'm really happy for them and I am really glad they were able to find themselves through this great genre media and I think that again, it shows the power of a lot of queer manga titles to be able to see yourself in and uh, kind of recognize hey, this is how I'm feeling and this is like kind of a vision of myself I want to be and I think that kind of plays off our discussion of Tagami's work and like kind of his intentions of what he like likes to explore both his hardcore stuff and now in his like kind of mainstream stuff as well Similarly, I really, really enjoyed MacWiz over the past year-ish has been going to Ranma and she really, really found uh, a lot she resonated with in Ranma in terms of, you know, gender identity stuff. Like she really got taken to female Ranma uh, and just vied with her so much. And recently she made a video kind of reflecting on like her experience watching through Ranma and like how she kind of related to the series and her own like journey and I really really appreciated that obviously as a Rama fan as as myself and as someone who was like watching her kind of uh you know tweet about her experience watching Sir Rama and you know was anticipating her making this video and I'm glad that she was able to kind of put it back up because it got taken down suddenly and I thought that was very unfortunate looks like it's still up uh yeah definitely you know she put a lot of work in that you know she took a break from making videos for a little while so this is like her first video back in like nearly two years so definitely I wanted to share it and give it some support because I really, really, really appreciated it and resonated with it and how she really got so much out of it. And then uh, the last thing I'll mention as a shout out is something that I know like you really wanted to talk about last night. You have talked about since and that is... Ooh kind of legend uh, Dragon Ball story by Nazir Pasha and their team and yeah I got a chance to watch it as well and yeah it is indeed very very good just a great love letter to Dragon Ball you know a lot of easter eggs in there both to the series itself and also to the fan the community I think they worked some fun stuff in there and yeah it's like a, I appreciate it as a complete reimagining of Dragon Ball like it's not just an adaptation of the story it's a complete remix that is also creating its own lore and iconography. And I really like the fiery monkey transformation that they give Goku. Uh, I think it looks super cool. Essentially, there's just him just spitting fire and it burns his face and it just creates like this flaming like monkey form of his, like a, a, just a fiery Sun Wukong type. Uh, I really, really like that. That was pretty cool. And yeah, it's, the main draw of it is just like excellent uh, action animation. 
and uh, I think that it looks just really cool aesthetically in terms of animation you know and just being a remix of like very iconic clearly moments they really loved about the story and just things they love about Dragon Ball just all in one like nice eight minute animated video so yeah I really appreciated it I think in general I really like their channel and their animations videos they've been doing a lot of cool stuff for a while so in addition to the short film I'll definitely want to recommend Nazir's video about like his work process when he goes into making animation like in his tips to not trash your work animating Fujiko video that he did just showing the process of the like shot that he created for kind of a loop on the third tribute that his studio published just last year so yeah I thought that was a cool again behind the look at like his process uh, as an animator and like kind of the different steps that he likes to go through from start to finish and kind of figuring out like the finished look and animation of a project so yeah I really like to use Stray Dogs works of course they've been doing great work for a long time now and like Monkey Kid and Rise of TMNT so immediately when I watched this, I was like, oh yeah, I, I recognize their work and just the expressive quality of it. But yeah, it's really cool to see that this short film project, the passion project I've been working on for four years now has really come together and uh, congrats to him and the team. And yeah, you know, I would say I hope Toei may be paying attention to I this. I hope so too. Uh, because like <laughs> they really should uh, reach out to them and uh, contract them for some work uh, on future Dragon Ball properties. So yeah, that'd be really cool. And of course, uh, Colton, I know you and Sakaki talked extensively about yep. this on another DD pod. You did a whole like hour, 20-ish minute discussion on that. So definitely, uh, if you want more discussion on that, check out that episode as well. Yep. Just like you said, uh, we did record a bonus episode about this on another day, another adventure at another DB pod. Because when I originally found this just kind of online, I found the trailer for it online. Uh, at first, I was like, oh, this looks kind of cool. And, you know, I am very hesitant with like Dragon Ball fan projects because sometimes they represent the series and the franchise in ways that I don't always agree with. So I was a little hesitant at first because I didn't know what I was getting into, even though I really liked the trailer. But obviously, when this short film premiered on YouTube and I watched it for the first time, like, I felt like a kid again. It was like, it's probably, like, one of my favorite Dragon Ball things, even though it's not, like, an official part of the franchise. I immediately messaged uh, Sakaki on Discord. and was like, dude, we're fucking talking about this. (laughs) And, um, yeah, fun fact, um, the raw audio for that ended up being an hour and 40 minutes so like there was just like so much gushing and like so much like there was a lot of stuff that like I eventually kind of trimmed it down a bit but yeah basically what I ended up keeping in that discussion was like the best parts of that honestly like uh, it was just so fun to gush about like a cool Dragon Ball thing and yeah I mean if you want to hear like my full thoughts on it definitely go listen to that episode Uh, it's on the public feed Uh, we'll leave a link for it in the show notes but I genuinely had a really fun time talking about it and I I gotta be honest I I was really waiting for you to like get around to it because I really wanted to know what you think of it because I I knew you would get a kick out of it yeah I mean it's just clearly just super passionate love letter that they just made you know in their spare time just over the course of years so I just thought wow this is a really cool project and I appreciate them bringing like real originality to their reimagining of Dragon Ball 2 yeah and some of the new ideas they came up with you know a lot of people I saw comparisons was like oh like this is kind of like a deviant artish thing like this design of the fiery Goku and whatnot but it's, it's I, cool I think that it came from an inspired place and yeah I mean the clear passion is just shown in the animation like they really their love for Dragon Ball I think just seeps through in every aspect of 
the yeah. day, you know, and they didn't cut any corners. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I can't help but just be enamored uh, with it and feel like, wow, these guys uh, really made something really special. And, you know, I, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I would love to see that same kind of energy brought to uh, official Dragon Ball production. I hope so. I mean, look, I've watched this probably like four to five times now, and I'm probably going to watch it even more. Um, I just want this on record real quick because I'm looking it up on YouTube right now. Um, I think when we recorded that episode, the video was at like 1.5 million views, I think, on YouTube, maybe 2.5 million. I'd have to re-listen to the episode and double check. Uh, Right now, at the time of this recording, 6.5 million views on YouTube. A lot of people have watched this. Indeed. And it's it's deserved. It's genuinely really good. Like, if you're a fan of Dragon Ball, general fan of animation, or both, like, you really should go watch this. It's, quite frankly, really amazing. Absolutely. Can I mention one more thing before we head out of community shoutouts? Because uh, there was one thing I actually kind of forgot to talk about last time uh, on our last episode where uh, we eulogized Kazuki Takahashi, the creator of Yu-Gi-Oh, who sadly passed away recently. And so on Twitter, you know, obviously that day, you know, that was just kind of all that was on my mind for that day and like the next few days to come. It still really deeply hurts me as like a fan of Yu-Gi-Oh! and Takahashi's work. Uh, I think that same day, I made a thread on Twitter basically highlighting a bunch of Yu-Gi-Oh! podcasts that I had listened to over the past few years and even some that I've been a part of that uh, I will link in the show notes as a part of this community shout out segment. Basically, again, it's just a whole thread of a bunch of Yu-Gi-Oh! podcasts that I've listened to uh, from shows like the over manga cast manga machinations uh secret histories of nerd mysteries just all kinds of podcasts that i've listened to over the past few years about Yu-Gi-Oh, you know as a franchise in general or podcasts about like you know the dark side of dimensions movie just like all kinds of Yu-Gi-Oh discussion that i really wanted to like collect together in one thread for people like me who maybe were very obviously very deeply hurt by the news of takahashi's passing and you know just kind of wanted to like just kind of stay in that Yu-Gi-Oh space just to kind of like comfort themselves. Again, I will definitely be linking that thread in the show notes for this community shout out segment uh, for people who just want to listen to more Yu-Gi-Oh! discussion because I know I definitely kind of needed it to kind of recover from his passing. For sure. And those are a great collection of podcasts. Uh, you did not include the Ad Movies episodes that uh, Leo right. and I did on <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh! Movies. So uh, I'll also join, you know, if you want to listen to our thoughts on Dark Side Dimensions and Pure Night Light, check out those episodes of Ad Movies as well. I'll be sure to add that to the thread. I did forget about that. I apologize. Yeah, no worries. I mean, the most important thing is to spread the love about Yu-Gi-Oh! And people just talking about how much they cherish the series and Takashi's work. For sure. But I believe that'll do us for community shoutouts this time. Always so much great stuff constantly coming out from a lot of amazing people. But that'll just mean more for us to share and talk about the next time on us future episodes as well but for now i think we'll head into the wrap up of the show and we'll see you again in the next episode for more great gingor takami and queer manga discussion that's right uh as we've mentioned a few times at this point uh next week please look forward to our discussion of our colors from gingor tagame with special guest anishi uh who we've had on the show before to interview her we'll also leave a link in the show notes for people to listen to that episode because that was a very good interview and also where we kind of broke the news that our colors was coming out in english in the first place which was which is still really cool i still can't believe that happened but yeah we finally got to talk about it uh that will be coming up next week so yeah look forward to that on the next episode coming next week um but until then yes we're gonna go ahead and start plugging our stuff and letting you know where you guys can find us starting with my good friend lum where can the good people find 
you? You can find me at Lamramiyasha on Twitter. Lamramiyasha at a variety of places like Animation Revelation and Annie List, Letterboxd, or Editors of Lamramiyasha. You can find me there by the name. You can read my reviews on MyMarrows.com. A lot of books coming in. A lot of reviews plan to go out. Look forward to more on there. That's also where you can find the other podcasts I do. Lum Squad, the URC App Store Focus Podcast I do with my good friend Andrew Sixi Yoshimura, where we discuss the wonderful Wacky World, where we talk about classics, sci-fi, rom-com, manga, Yurisei Yatsura, and we have a lot of fun covering recent releases of the manga and the films coming out on Blu-ray thanks to Discotech and available streaming thanks to Crunchyroll. And of course, we're very excited to talk about the new anime coming out later this year. So we got a lot of plans for the show. We're really excited. So if you want to join us in the saniness and the talk of weird and weird and make it even weirder put together. So yeah, if you want to talk, uh, hear us talk about all that, you can listen to Lone Squad at Lone Squad on Twitter, uh, every podcast platform you can think of we're on. We also cross-post episodes in the Mindworks feed and episodes early on the Mindworks Patreon. And if you like the art I make for our shows, the thumbnails that I draw, and the illustrations and animations I make in general, you can find that on my Instagram at SetArtworks. All right. But as for me, I'm Colton. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts outside of this one that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh, we're over there. Uh, again, that's my personal blog. You can click on the podcast page and uh, basically take a look at literally everything I've done for the most part, including anything I'm working on currently, anything that uh, I'm not working on anymore, but I still want to link anyway, as well as a bunch of other guest spots I've done for other podcasts over the years. So yeah, if you literally want to listen to anything else I've ever done and I'm currently doing, again, you can go find all that stuff at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Once again, click on the podcast page and listen to my stuff if you want. But as for this podcast, as for Manga Mavericks, you can find every episode at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash mavericks, where at the $2 tier, you will have access to select episodes of the podcast, depending on when we have them edited. Basically, if we have an episode of the podcast edited before it's supposed to go up on the main feed, uh, we will put it up on our Patreon first. But admittedly, uh, that doesn't happen as often as we would like, because it really depends on what we have done at any given time. So if you want more reliable content, admittedly, you do want to sign up for our $5 tier, uh, where over there, we post a new bonus podcast exclusively to the Patreon at the end of every month. Uh, this episode of the podcast was mostly comprised of a past bonus podcast that we did back in 2020 about My Brother's Husband. And so if you like this episode of the podcast, you should sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash mavericks at the $5 tier for even more cool discussions that, uh, again, are exclusively available on our Patreon. You know, just in general, when you sign up for our Patreon, it's really the best way for you guys to support us and everything that we do here, because everything we make on our Patreon goes back to keeping the website and the podcast up. So basically, anything you give us helps. Uh, again, that's at patreon.com slash mavericks. Uh, please sign up if you want to support us in whatever way you can. Um, but as for everything else, you could follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks, uh, where we post different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Gengoro Tagame's work, you know, such as, you know, my brother's husband, our colors, or, or even any of his uh, erotic stuff? Do you have any thoughts on any of the news we covered this episode? Are you reading anything that you want us to talk about on the show, maybe? Again, email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com, and we'll read it on the show. We love getting emails from you guys whenever you send them. 
But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms at this point, but especially on Apple Podcasts and even Spotify. You know, if you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show on those platforms. And just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys, whether it be positive or negative. So, you know, any feedback we get from you guys, we want to use that to make the show uh, as good as possible. But yes, that is going to about do it for this episode of Manga Mavericks. Thank you so much for listening. This has been episode 208 of the Manga Mavericks podcast. We'll see you guys next time for episode 209. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.